Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Journal radio show, and as a public service, uh, we interrupt our daily broadcast schedule periodically to present uh, continuing online audio educational courses. The purpose of these uh, audio courses is to present vital material or hidden historical truths kept from the American people and kept from the people of the world that are normally presented in a sporadic manner on the Internet. Uh, You know what I'm talking about. You can get them in many places, but no one's sure of the validity or whether they're reading the truth or not. But instead, now, the investigative investigative journal is proud to present these online educational courses, and we thank the Liberty Radio Network for allowing this to occur. Uh, Instead, we're going to be placing this information in an organized educational course structure, the type you may find in a normal university in America. The courses you will uh, listen to and subscribe to into the future uh, are not of normal nature. You will not find any of these courses taught in the universities of higher learning, and that is the reason uh, that this online course and these courses are going to be presented. First of all, the main topic of this whole idea that we're presenting online is to really find out the hidden truths, find out about the inner workings of the New World Order, and how Americans can get vital information in an educational, organized manner from people uh, who are experts in their fields. The subjects that we're going to be talking, talking about are highly volatile, but many times hidden, many times suppressed by uh, all educational facilities in our country and also media outlets. It is time to move away from entertainment and to, again, research the real problems facing America in all areas of entertainment, all areas of our media, all areas of our government, all areas of our religious organizations. And tonight we are presenting uh, a course that uh, Professor Eric Phelps will present, and he's going to take over for two hours, and the course is going to be presented in a three-part manner, uh, two hours tonight, two hours tomorrow evening, and two hours Wednesday night. And the course is the introductory course on the understanding of the Jesuit order. The course will entail three areas. That is, you will be able to listen to it live, of course. You can be able to listen to it on 
Liberty Radio archives, and in the future it will be placed on my online educational uh, uh, internet site that I will have. And uh, when you get those archives, you'll be able to uh, have course uh, restrictions, you'll have course uh, duties, you'll be able to listen to your audios, and then participate in an online blog as well as uh, write essays and do different things so that we can begin to talk about these subjects in a serious manner, as our counterparts uh, do in other uh, areas such that, that uh, they consider to be the truth. The first uh, course, like I said, is presented tonight by Eric John Phelps. He will take over for two hours. It will be presented in this manner. Uh, he will talk uh, until the bottom of the hour where we'll take a three-minute break uh, to recognize the people that are supporting this online type of educational process. He will then come back and uh, continue the course and at the top of the hour take a two-minute break to do the same and then repeat that for the second hour. Tonight is part one. Tomorrow will be part two and Wednesday part three. I am your moderator, Greg Szymanski, and now I turn the show over to Eric John Phelps. Eric, it's all yours. Pleasure to be with you, Greg, and your listeners tonight. Well, Greg and I feel that it is incumbent upon us to uh, set forth the history of the papacy, namely its dark ages, and the power of the popes at the time over the political governments, the kings and queens of Europe, as well as the Far East, and then the ensuing Reformation, the Protestant Reformation beginning in 1517 when Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to All Saints Church in Wittenberg. And then the resultant Counter-Reformation started by Loyola. And it's in this flow and stream of history that we can more, um, we can better understand the power and purpose of the Jesuit order and its power today so that it doesn't look like we have pulled the Jesuit order as a genie out of our hat and decided to blame it for all the, uh, the way the world is in this particular situation is now, especially in the U.S. So in order to understand the Jesuit order, we have to go back several centuries prior to its establishment and see the power of the popes during the Dark Ages. <clears throat> now in my book, Vatican Assassin, <clears throat> excuse me, Wounded in the house of my friends, I have an extra CD uh, to that kit that has 13 old books on it. One of those old books is titled The History of Romanism by John Dowling. It is a classic. It was finished in 1845. It is full of verve and vigor written by a man who believed in the Word of God and truly was a, a Christian gentleman who had... Uh, whose master and Lord was the Lord Jesus Christ of the Scriptures. And with all of this understanding that he had from the Scriptures, he dug out this history from some of the greatest historians of the past, like Hallam and H.C. Lee and others, uh, Rank, Diagni, uh, uh, and others. And he puts all of this in a wonderful narration that extends, oh, I'd say, uh, in excess of uh, 700 pages. But it's all on my CD there, and what I'm reading to you tonight, you will be 
able to read along with as you obtain a copy of my book with a detached CD, which is free. So to begin with, we will start with the Dark Ages. And there are two popes that we wish to remember that at the meridian of papal power, these popes exercised a power that was absolute, that was unfettered, and uh, we stand in astonishment as we look at what they claim to be. Uh, the first pope is Hildebrand, who came to power in 1073. And the second pope is Innocent III, who came to power a couple centuries later. He was the reigning pope in 1215. At the time, he condemned the Magna Charta in England that began to be the real uh, uh, charter of rights for English freemen. So uh, we shall begin with Endowing's History of the Reformation on pages 240, or pardon me, Endowing's History of Romanism on page 240 concerning <clears throat> this pope called Hildebrand, or later Gregory VII. Quote, <clears throat> Hildebrand was a man of uncommon genius whose ambition in forming the most arduous projects was equaled by his dexterity in bringing them into execution. Sagacious, crafty, and intrepid, nothing could escape his penetration, defeat his stratagems, or daunt his courage. Haughty and arrogant beyond all measure, obstinate, impetuous, and intractable, he looked up to the summit of universal empire, I repeat, universal empire, with a wishful eye, and labored up to the steep ascent with uninterrupted ardor and invincible perseverance, void of all principle and destitute of every pious and virtuous feeling. He suffered little restraint in his audacious pursuits from the dictates of religion or the remonstrances of conscience. Such was the character of Hildebrand, and his conduct was every way suitable to it. For no sooner did he find himself in the papal chair than he displayed to the world the most odious marks of his tyrannic ambition. Not contented to enlarge the jurisdiction and to augment the opulence, opulence of the See of Rome, he labored indefatigably to render the universal church subject to the despotic government and the arbitrary power of the pontiff alone to dissolve the jurisdiction which kings and emperors had hitherto exercised over the various orders of the clergy, and to exclude them from all part of the management or distribution of the revenues of the church. Nay, this outrageous pontiff went still farther and impiously attempted to submit to his jurisdiction the emperors, kings, and princes of the earth, and to render their dominions tributary to the See of Rome. We'll pause for a few comments here. We see that Hildebrand was a genius. We must attribute this to many popes. They are brilliant. They're intellectual geniuses. They have a vision and dreams of fulfilling what they desire, which is universal spiritual power and universal temporal power. We must not forget that in 606, the pope was given universal spiritual power and 150 years later, in 756, he was given universal temple power at Pepin. So as a result of this, every pope thereon and thereafter 
sought to enhance and enlarge these two powers. These two powers are represented on the papal flag that any of you can see if you go by any Roman Catholic school or in my nearby area, a Jesuit church. One of the flags they fly is the papal flag, which is a crown of the Pope, a triple crown, with two keys crossed, each key symbolizing the powers of the Pope. The first being his universal spiritual power, that every creature is to be subject to the spiritual power of the Pope. And the other key is his universal temporal power, that every king, that every military dictator, that every president, that every prime minister is to be subject to his rule. It is these two powers that the papacy uh, works with all of their might, day and night, in conspiracy against all the governments of man to establish making the white pope, or the pope that is visible dressed in white, the universal monarch of the world. And this is the foundation, this is the theological foundation for what we call today the New World Order. The New World Order is nothing more than the reversion back to the Old World Order, which was the Dark Ages of the Papacy, or what Dowling called the Iron Age of Man. Continuing on page 240 of Dowling's History of Romanism, we read, quote, The views of Hildebrand, or Hellbrand, as from his insane ambition he has been appropriately styled, were not confined to the erection of an absolute and universal monarchy in the church. They aimed also at the establishment of a civil monarchy equally extensive and despotic. And this aspiring pontiff, after having drawn up a system of ecclesiastical canons, canons being laws or statutes, for the government of the church, would have introduced also a new code of political laws had he been permitted to execute the plan he had formed. His purpose was, says Mosheim, Mosheim was a premier Protestant historian. One of his works was the history of the church by Mosheim. And so Mosheim says here, to engage in the bonds of fidelity and allegiance to St. Peter, i.e., to the Roman pontiffs, all the kings and princes of the earth, and to establish at Rome an annual assembly of bishops by whom the contests that might arise between kingdoms of sovereign states were to be decided, the rights and pretensions of princes to be examined, and the fate of nations and empires to be determined. Making this in simple language, the Pope, or Hellbrand, claimed that he had the right to a universal monarchy in the earth, that he was the one to establish that monarchy, and that any uh, problems between monarchs in their various kingdoms or sovereign states were to be decided by himself. Dear listener, do you understand why the Pope now has an honorary chair in the United Nations? It is here that he claims he has the right to decide the fate of nations, the future of wars, the, the, the decision of how the Cold War will be waged, and well, always under the guise of calling for peace, when in fact he is the mover and the shaker of every war 
at least since the beginning of the Counter-Reformation in 1540 with the Jesuit, Ignatius Loyola's establishment of the Jesuit order. So here we have this most notorious, most uh, uh, notorious Pope, Hildebrand, with these powers that he claims. Now we are going to see an example of this power over one of the Holy Roman Emperors of Europe, whose name was Henry IV. Uh, we now will begin reading page 241. The contest was Gregory carried on for several years with the unfortunate Emperor Henry IV affords an instructive comment upon the deep-laid plans of this most imperious and ambitious pope. Soon after his election, Gregory was informed that Solomon, king of Hungary, dethroned by his brother Geisha, had fled to Henry for protection and renewed the homage of Hungary to the empire. Gregory, who favored Geisha, exclaimed against this act of submission and said in a letter to Solomon, quote, You ought to know that the kingdom of Hungary belongs to the Roman Church. I repeat, that the kingdom of Hungary belongs to the Roman Church, and learn that you will incur the indignation of the Holy See if you do not acknowledge that you hold your dominions of the Pope and not of the Emperor. So what Hildebrand was saying was that to this uh, geisha that that you hold your kingdom not from Henry the Fourth, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, of the First Reich, the First German Reich, but you hold it as a matter of privilege from the Pope. This holds today. This doctrine is is as much in effect today as it was back then in the 11th century. This is why when F. Kennedy refused to be governed by the Pope of Rome, when he publicly declared this in 1960, when he, refute, when he repudiated the temporal power of the Pope, this is when the Jesuits set out for his assassination. And this was in 1960, before he had been elected president. He had had a Democratic nomination, and he met before a series of Protestant ministers in Houston, Texas, and when he publicly said that no pope will tell any American president how to rule the affairs of state, he repudiated this temporal power which Hildebrand had so championed and thereby incurred the wrath of the papacy because in the eyes of Pope Paul VI, John F. Kennedy held the American presidency by extension of the Pope of Rome. We continue now with Dowling's narration. Um, this presumptuous declaration and the neglect it met with brought the quarrel between the empire and the church to a crisis. So now we have a quarrel between Hildebrand and Henry IV. It was directed to Solomon, but intended for Henry. And if Gregory could not succeed in one way, he was resolved that he would in another. He therefore resumed the claim of investitures for which he had a more plausible pretense. And as that dispute and its consequences merit particular attention, we shall relate briefly the origin and history of this protracted quarrel between the Pope and the emperors. The investiture of bishops and abbots commenced 
Undoubtedly, at that period of time, when the European emperors, kings and princes, made grants to the clergy, that is not done anymore, by the way, of certain territories, lands, forests, castles, etc. According to the laws of those times, laws which still remain in force as of 1845, none were considered as lawful possessors of the lands or tenements which they derived from the emperors or other princes before they repaired to court took the oath of allegiance to their respective sovereigns as the supreme proprietors and received from their hands a solemn mark by which the property of their respective grants was transferred to them. Such was the manner in which the nobility and those who had distinguished themselves by military exploits were confirmed in the possessions which they owed to the liberality of their sovereigns. But the custom of investing the bishops and abbots with the ring and the crosier which are the ensigns of the sacred function, function, is of a much more recent date and was then first introduced when the European emperors and princes assumed to themselves the power of conferring on whom they pleased the bishoprics and abbeys that became vacant in their dominions, nay, even of selling them to the highest bidder. This power then, being once usurped by the kings and priests of Europe, they at first confirmed the bishops and abbots in their dignities and possessions, with the same forms of ceremonies that were used in investing the counts, knights, and others in their feudal tenures, even by written contracts, and the ceremony of presenting them with a wand or bow. And this custom of investing the clergy and the laity with the same ceremonies would have undoubtedly continued had not the clergy, to whom the right of electing bishops and abbots originally belonged, eluded artfully the usurpation of the emperors and other princes by the following stratagem. Now watch this stratagem here. Remember, here, is, here are bishops and abbots receiving their right to rule by the sovereigns. This is going to end with Hildebrand. Hildebrand is going to take this power, and he is going to usurp it over Henry IV. We go now to Section 8. Considering the character of Gregory VII, or Hildebrand, it is no wonder that he could ill brook this conduct of the emperors, and thus securing to themselves the right of confirming the election of bishops by the ceremony of investing them with the ring and the crozier. Accordingly, we find that in 1075, Gregory assembled a council at Rome in which he excommunicated certain favorites of Henry and pronounced a formal anathema or curse against whoever received the investiture of a bishopric or abbacy from the hands of a layman, namely, a, namely an emperor, as also against those by whom the investiture should be performed. This decree was doubtless aimed chiefly at the emperor, who strenuously insisted on his asserted right of investiture, which his predecessors had enjoyed. As Henry continued to disregard the Pope's decree, Gregory sent two legates to summon him to appear before him as a delinquent because he still continued to bestow investitures, notwithstanding the apostolic decree to the contrary, adding that if he should fail to yield obedience to the church, he must expect to be excommunicated and dethroned. I repeat, that if he should fail to yield obedience to the church, he must expect to be excommunicated and dethroned. This is now a classic example of the popes exercising their temporal power. Incensed at that arrogant message from one whom he considered as his vassal, 
Henry dismissed the legates with very little ceremony and convoked an assembly of all the German princes and dignified ecclesiastics at Worms, where, after mature deliberation, they concluded that Gregory, having usurped the chair of St. Peter by indirect means, infected the Church of God with many novelties and abuses and deviated from his duty to his sovereign in several scandalous attempts, the emperor, by that supreme authority, derived from his predecessors, ought to divest him of his dignity and appoint another in his place. So here now is the Holy Roman Emperor deciding to get rid of the Pope. And the Pope now has told the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV, you're going to be subject to me because if you're not, I'm going to excommunicate you. So here's a classic war that we as historians and as all American people must remember as a classic example of history. Watch the outcome of this between Hildebrand, who's Gregory VII, and the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV. Henry immediately dispatched an ambassador to Rome with a formal deprivation of Gregory, who in his turn convoked a council at which were present 110 bishops who unanimously agreed that the Pope had just caused to depose Henry to dissolve the oath of allegiance which the princes and states had taken in his favor and to prohibit them from holding any correspondence with him on pain of excommunication. So now they couldn't even talk to the emperor. And that sentence was immediately fulminated against the emperor and his adherents. Quote, In the name of Almighty God and by your authority, said Gregory, alluding to the members of the council, I prohibit Henry, the son of our emperor Henry, was from governing the Teutonic kingdom, in Germany and Italy, and I release all Christians, namely Roman Catholics, from their oath of allegiance to him, and I strictly forbid all persons from serving or attending him as king, unquote. Thus, says Hallam, Gregory VII obtained the glory of leaving all his predecessors behind, all the previous popes behind, and astonishing mankind by an act of audacity and ambition which the most emulous of his successors could hardly surpass. So what the Pope has done is he has, ex is he has relieved all the uh, citizens and subjects of Henry IV from their allegiance to him and no longer have to obey him as their sovereign. The first impulses of Henry's mind on hearing the denunciation were indignation and resentment. But like other inexperienced and misguided sovereigns, he had formed an erroneous calculation of his own resources. A conspiracy long prepared of which the Dukes of Swabia and Carithia were the chiefs began to manifest itself. Some were alienated by his vices and others jealous of his family. The rebellious Saxons took courage. The bishops, intimidated by excommunications, withdrew from his side. He suddenly found himself almost insult insulated in the midst of his dominions. In this desertion he had recourse, through panic, to a miserable expedient. He crossed the Alps with the avowed determination of submitting and seeking absolution from the Pope. Gregory was at Canassa, a fortress near Reggio belonging to his faithful adherent, the Countess Matilda, in AD 1077. It was in a winter of universal severity. The emperor was admitted without his guards into the outer court of the castle 
and three successive days remained from morning till evening in a woolen shirt and with naked feet, while Gregory, shut up with a tender and loving countess, wonder what they were doing, refused to admit him to his presence. So here is the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV, for three days and three nights outside, barefoot in the snows of Rome, or the snows of the, as he crossed the Alps into Rome, and now he is to submit to the Pope, to this most humiliating uh, decision of Hildebrand. We continue. Thanks after continuing for three days in the cold, barefoot and fasting, the humbled emperor was admitted into the palace and allowed the superlative honor of kissing the Pope's toe. I repeat, of the superlative honor of kissing the Pope's toe. The haughty pontiff condescended to grant him absolution, but only upon condition of appearing on a certain day to learn the Pope's decision, whether or no he should be restored to his kingdom. Until which time the Pope forbade him to wear the ornaments or to exercise the functions of royalty. Intoxicated with his triumph, Gregory now regarded himself as Lord and Master of all the crowned heads of Christendom, or namely the Roman Catholic Holy Roman Empire. As the Protestant Reformation did not exist, and the true Christians were in the Alps uh, attempting to preserve their lives from the swords of France and Germany. And boasted in his letters that it was his duty, quote, to pull down the pride of kings, unquote. Your listener, this is a classic example of the Pope enforcing his temporal power. And this was the beginning of this horrible enforcement that has continued to this day. And it was truly first begun by Hildebrand, or surnamed Hellbrand, whose papal name was Gregory VII. So let us remember this lesson of Gregory VII, how he humiliated Henry IV, because we are also going to understand how this has been done to American presidents, how this was done to Woodrow Wilson, Warren Hardy, FDR. the fight. We are here to equip you because you love the truth. LibertyRadioLive.com takeover of the church. This DVD is the most powerful tool we have for waking up those asleep in the pews. And scripture calls for his people to cover. The corporate church is the apostate church, the whore that rides the beast. Make copies and away to your corporate church friends and loved ones. The truth will make them free. They will watch the DVD. Government takeover of the church. Who will tell them, if not you. Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from LibertyRadioLive.com. Order online today or call 559 781 
FlyingEagleGold.com says don't buy the sizzle of that steak until you understand the cost. In other words, don't buy the hype being dispensed by the rare coin pitchman of the alternative media until you understand the full story. Jeffrey Bennett has been a purveyor of wealth protection, gold and silver bullion, and rare collectible coins for over 17 years. His personal experience reaches back to 1958. FlyingEagleGold.com offers the most private, non-confiscable gold and silver coinage in the world at a very competitive cost. And Jeffrey takes personal pride in putting your interests ahead of all else. You're invited to call Flying Eagle Gold at 623-327-1778. That's 623-327-1778 for the truth about protecting your wealth. Join Jeffrey Bennett each day, Monday through Friday, when he hosts Read Between the Lines, right here on LibertyRadioLive.com. If you'd like to get a copy of this program, there are a few ways that we can help you. You may subscribe at LibertyRadioLive.com for only $45 a month. And you'll receive an MP3 CD weekly of all the First Amendment Rights Media Group programs. As a bonus, we'll send you a password for our audio archives online. That's a $15 value. Or you can request any month of any program on one MP3 CD for a minimum donation of only $20. For any single program on tape, MP3 CD, or CD for only $15. You can do all this online at LibertyRadioLive.com. Just follow the instructions to make a donation or subscribe. Don't do Internet? Then call 559-781-3773, 559-781-3773, and we'll be honored to help you. Thank you from all of us here at the First Amendment Rights Media Group. Okay, we return now to our examination of the Dark Ages. This is Brother Eric John Phelps, author of Vatican Assassin. Our website is www.vaticanassassins.org. The book I offer is Vatican Assassin, Wounds in the House of My Friends, 1836 pages, over 700 uh, pictures and portraits, uh, many, many different uh, sources that have been used to paint the picture of papal power through the establishment of the Jesuit order and the present control of the nations of the world, especially the assassination of JFK, and now the Jesuit order's war on terror. It is not only waged against the Muslim peoples controlling, they controlling, the Jesuits controlling the Muslim leaders, but also specifically waged against the American peoples in attempting to destroy the last vestiges of the Protestant Reformation here. But to understand this and to appreciate what the Jesuits are up to now, we have to understand somewhat the Dark Ages, the Reformation, and the Counter-Reformation. So we will continue after we have now described Hildebrand and his submission of Henry IV, Holy Roman Emperor, we will now examine Innocent III, his submission of King John of England. I'm reading from History of Romanism, 
Popery, the world's death spot, 80, 10, 1073 to 1303. We'll now read about Hildebrand, or uh, Innocent III. And by the way, the Jesuits seek to put a pope on the throne that will be just as vicious, just as absolute as Innocent III, because there's a book written called The Dark Ages, the 13th century, the greatest of centuries. And that is what the Jesuits wish to restore the world to. In the 13th century, it was Innocent III who was the most notable, the most evil, the most wicked, the most heartless of the popes. Page 279 of Dowling's History of Romanism. Quote, The most remarkable exhibition of priestly tyranny and successful papal arrogance that has ever occurred in Great Britain, and perhaps in the world, was that which signalized the pontificate of Innocent III, a pope that carried out the policy of Hildebrand to an unprecedented extent in his treatment of the Kingdom of England and its weak and contemptible King John in the early part of the 13th century. It is justly remarked by the historian of the Middle Ages that, quote, the pontificate of Innocent III may be regarded as the meridian or noonday of papal usurpation. We must repeat that. And the historian of the great Hallam's Middle Ages, it's a classic on the Middle Ages, the, quote, the pontificate of Innocent III may be regarded as the meridian or noonday of papal usurpation, unquote. In each of the three leading objects which Rome had pursued, namely independent sovereignty, supremacy over the Christian, or really, in fact, the Roman Catholic Church, and control over the princes of the earth, get that, control over the princes of the earth, it was the fortune of this pontiff to conquer. The maxims of Gregory VII, or Hildebrand, were now matured by more than a hundred years, and the right of trampling upon the necks of kings had been received, at least among churchmen, as an inherent attribute of the papacy. Quote, as the sun and the moon are placed in the firmament, unquote, says the pontiff, quote, the greater as the light of the day and the lesser of the night, thus are there two powers in the church, the pontifical, which, as having the charge of souls, is the greater, and the royal, which is the less, and to which the bodies of men only are entrusted, unquote. This is the definition of the spiritual and the temporal power. He talks, and thus there are two powers in the church, the pontifical, which is having the charge of souls, that's the spiritual power, one of the keys displayed on the papal flag is the greater. So therefore Rome exalts the spiritual power the most because you see, before they can get you to submit to the Pope's temple power, to get you to organize your affairs in your home pursuant to what the Pope wants, to make you run your country as the way the Pope wants, before you submit in temple things, you must first submit in spiritual things. So if you are submitted to the spiritual power of the Pope, but there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church, that the Pope is in fact God manifest in the flesh, that he is God on earth, that he is the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth, quote-unquote. If you submit to these lies, if you submit to this fakery of his temple, of his spiritual power, you most assuredly will submit to his temple power. That is why it is so imperative 
that you have a Bible in your hand and that you read it. Because if you believe that book, that book of God, the Word of God, the Protestant Bible, the AB 1611, you will, in fact, not submit to the temporal power of the Pope. Your country will never be governed by the papacy because a Bible-reading people cannot be enslaved. And notice I'm not talking about any particular Protestant or Baptist church. I'm talking about individuals who read the Bible. That's why the Jesuits, in control of Scottish Rite Freemasonry, in the person of that stinking, ungodly, wicked, apostate Lutheran Protestant by the name of Earl Warren, who was the Chief Justice of the American Supreme Court in 1963, kicked out Bible reading and prayer from our public schools. By doing that, he secured papal ascendancy over our politics in this country. And Earl Warren was a beloved son of the papacy in secret by way of his 33rd degree trine of Freemasonry, and thus, in taking his commands from the Jesuits of Georgetown University, removed the Bible from our public schools, and thus secured the Jesuits the ability to rule us spiritually, and thereby our government its temporal power. We'll go on now to Dowling, it's page 280, in his The History of Romanism. Um, if the clergy complained to him that the people, cut off from the offices of religion, refused to pay tithes and go to hear the secretaries, sectaries, he consents that divine service shall be performed with closed doors, but denies them the rights of the sepulcher. So in other words, the Pope, at his pleasure, would place a kingdom under an interdict. An interdict is when the Pope says, you no longer can perform marriages. You priests can no longer perform marriages, you can no longer bury the dead, and the commerce of the nation stops. The 1929 stock market crash was in fact an interdict over American commerce in this country because three Irish Roman Catholics were the short sellers of the 1929 crash. Benjamin Strong, Tom Bragg, and the illustrious Knight of Malta, Joseph P. Kennedy. That's when they put our country under an interdict. Commerce stopped until the Pope of Rome had seized our gold by the way of FDR, and then commerce was resumed with strictly paper currency and commercial instruments, because a commercial instrument in commerce is what the papacy calls an indulgence. Paper currencies are nothing more than indulgences from the Pope of Rome to engage in commerce. They are backed by nothing. They are dealable by nothing. They are only good by word of the government because the government says your paper dollar has thus and such amount, and the papal indulgence, that piece of paper that was sold to individuals so they could sin, and they would then present this indulgence back to a priest to cover for his sins as a payment for his sins. All of this is commercial paper. And thus we see what the 1929 stock market crash really was. It was an interdict. So therefore, at the, place, the Pope, at his pleasure, can place a kingdom under an interdict. This also means it cannot bury the dead. So when a country cannot bury its dead, it is now threatened with the bubonic plague. 
And so the kings and the leaders of those countries know that they better get out underneath this interdict real quick, or we're going to have disease everywhere. So the, so the popes then, by uh, being able to put a country under an interdict back in the Dark Ages here, could further their power and further the submission of the kings of the nation, of the nations of Europe. So, we quote on, and instantly public worship is suspended in the Catholic Church, and the dead lie unburied. So this is a power that uh, Innocent III wielded. Another thing that Innocent III did is that he began, the, he continued the crusades against Islam. And he therefore by, uh, made lots of money in the continuance of these crusades, in making Jerusalem safe for the pilgrims, blah, 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 uh, when in fact he was depopulating the population of Europe, which was one of his intents, and, uh, aggrandizing to himself more wealth in the papal treasury, while at the same time fighting his enemies, at the time Islam was the enemy of the papacy because he called the Pope an infidel and refused to give Jerusalem to the Pope after the Pope had financed uh, Muhammad and financed the jihads and financing the spread of uh, Islam throughout North Africa and into Spain. So therefore, this was Innocent III's attempting to regain Jerusalem, because the devil has always wanted Jerusalem for the papacy, so that the papacy can rebuild the Hebrew temple in Jerusalem for itself. Innocent III was the master at this. This is what he wanted. Innocent III also publicly condemned the Magna Charta. After it was written... Uh, and a priest helped to write Magna Carta. His name was Stephen Langdon. Stephen Langdon was defrocked and excommunicated. How dare any priest try to give any private rights to any individuals apart from the new privileges conferred by the papacy? So the, the innocent III was against all political power, true political power, uh, that would give any kind of liberty to any of the, uh, the nation's subjects, particularly in England, and he was against any... Uh, divesting of his spiritual power to any priests and bishops. He consolidated as much as he could into his own hands. Continuing on now, um, in a few words, it was this innocent III who humiliated King John, who was the king of England. Uh, we read here, the consequences of this terrific sentence are thus described by Mr. Hume, quote, the execution, says he, was calculated to strike the senses in the highest degree and to operate the irresistible force of the superstitious minds of the people. The nation was, of a sudden, deprived of all exterior exercise of its religion. The altars were despoiled by their ornaments. The crosses, the relics, the images, the statues of the saints were laid on the ground, and as if the air itself were profane and might pollute them by its contact, the priests carefully covered them up, even from their own approach and veneration. This is when England was put under an interdict by Innocent III. The use of bells entirely ceased in all the churches. The bells themselves were removed from the steeples and laid on the ground with the other sacred utensils. Mass was celebrated with closed doors and none but the priests were admitted to the holy institution. The laity partook of no religious rite except the communion to the dying. The dead were not interred in consecrated ground. They were thrown into ditches or buried in common fields, 
and their uh, obsequies were not attended with prayers or any hallowed ceremony. Marriage was celebrated in the churchyard, and that very action in life might bear the marks of this dreadful situation. The people were prohibited the use of meat, as in Lent, or times of the highest uh, penance, were debarred from all pleasures and entertainments, and were forbidden even to salute each other, I mean say hello, or so much as to shave their beards and give any decent attention to their apparel. Every circumstance carried symptoms of the deepest distress and of the most immediate apprehension of the divine vengeance and indignation. When this interdict had continued about two years, the Pope proceeded to step further and pronounced the awful sentence of excommunication against King John, which he commanded the bishops of London, Ely, and Worcester, the most obscure tools, to publish in England. These prelates who then resided on the continent sent copies of the sentence and of the Pope's commands to punish it, uh, to publish it in their churches to the bishops and clergy who remained in England. But such was their dread of the royal indignation that none of them had the courage to execute these commands. Geoffrey, Archdeacon of Norwich, one of the king's judges, was sitting on the bench in the exchequer at Westminster, declared to the other judges that the king was excommunicated and that he did not think it lawful for him to act any longer in his name, for which declaration he was thrown into prison where he soon died. In the year 1211, the Pope sent two legates to England whose names were uh, Pandolf and Durand. These legates were admitted to an audience at a parliament which was held at Northampton when a most violent altercation took place between them and the king. Pandolf plainly told the king, even in the face of his parliament, that he was bound to obey the Pope in temples as well as spirituals. Here we go with the temple power and spiritual power. And when John refused to submit to the will of his holiness, Without reserve, the legate, with shameless effrontery, published a sentence of excommunication against him with a loud voice, absolving all his subjects from their oaths of allegiance, degraded him from his royal dignity, and declared that neither he nor any of his posterity should ever reign in England. This was certainly carrying clerical indolence to the height of extravagance, but in those unhappy times, the meanest agents of the Pope insulted the greatest princes with impunity. Well, what happens? The sentence of disposition against King John and excommunication against all who should obey him or have any connection with him, when these sentences were known in England, they began to excite the superstitious fears of some of the barons who were at the same time much dissatisfied with the prince for his impudent, illegal, and oppressive government. John, having received intimations of this from various quarters, became not a little alarmed and began to stagger at his resolution. To render the sentence of deposition against King John effectual, the Pope appointed Philip, King of France, to to put it in execution and promised him the pardon of all his sins and the kingdom of England for his reward, a temptation which that prince had neither the wisdom nor virtue to resist. (laughs) Blinded by his ambition, he commanded a large army to assemble at Rudin, and prepared a fleet of 1,700 vessels to convey them to England. All these preparations, however, only served to promote the purposes of the court of Rome, for as soon as John was sufficiently intimidated by his dread of the French army and his suspicions of his own subjects to induce him to make 
and ignominious surrender of his crown and kingdom to the Pope, the French king was obliged to abandon his enterprise against England to avoid the thunders of the church, the dreadful effects of which he had before his eyes. Now this, dear listener, is an example of the Pope using another nation against a nation he chooses to punish. This was done by Bill Clinton when he ordered the bombing of Serbia with 72 days of bombing the Serbs and after which the Serbs submitted, the bombing was called off. This is classic papal foreign policy carried out by the United States of America, which I call in my book, The Pope's Holy Roman, 14th Amendment, Corporate Fascist, Socialist Communist, American Empire. Continuing, the trembling John now implored the protection of Rome, whatever submission it might cost. The legate assured him that the Supreme Pontiff would require nothing which was not absolutely necessary either to the honor of the church or the safety of the king himself. He proposed, therefore, to withdraw the excommunication immediately on condition of John's promising to receive Langdon as archbishop, whose promotion to the primacy had been the occasion of all this furious contest and all the bishops and clergy who acknowledged him and to indemnify them for all the damage they had sustained. To all this the king of England consented, but the consummation of ignominy was yet to come. Under the specious pretext of securing England from the attacks by Philip, it was suggested to John to surrender his kingdoms to the Pope as to a lord paramount, to swear fealty to him, to receive the British islands back as fiefs of the Holy See, and to pay an annual tribute for them of 700 marks of silver for England and 300 for Ireland. On the, po- on the 12th of May, 1213, John performed all the degrading ceremonials of resignation, homage, and fealty. On his knees, he fully offered his kingdoms to the Pope and put them into the hands of the legate, Pandolf, who retained them for five days. He offered his tribute, which the legate threw down and trampled on, but afterwards condescended to gather up again. So what we have here is the submission of King John of England to the Pope of Rome. Absolutely disgusting. Because in the Bible, in a, God instituted sovereign nations. And sovereign nations are to be governed by the people of that nation according to their desires, and they are not to be governed by the papacy, by a foreign sovereign, thereby overthrowing the sovereignty of that country. A true Bible-believing Christian man is a patriot. He sustains his sovereign nation. He has an allegiance to his race, his language, his culture, and the geographic boundaries of his nation, and he will die to sustain it. That is a patriot. This kind of patriotism, Rome overthrows. This kind of nationalism, Rome overthrows. And it overthrows it pursuant to canon law. In concluding here, quote, in the engraving, which is a representation of the scene, the humbled monarch is seen on his knees before the Pope's legate, who has just received the crown from the hands of the king, and is trampling upon the gold with the gift of which John accompanied his submission. 
Some of the barons of England are looking on, grieved and indignant alike at the degradation of their weak-minded sovereign and the haughty and contemptuous insolence, insolence of the triumphal priest. Dear listener, this is exactly what Queen Elizabeth II does when she visits the Pope. In black, has an audience with him, kisses his ring. She puts her kingdom, the United Kingdom, at the feet of the Pope, and then she governs it according to the way the Pope wants her to do it. This is England today, and this is America today. The point of this all being is that the temporal power of the Pope never changes because his spiritual power never changes. If you believe that there's no salvation outside the Roman Catholic institution, then the logical conclusion of that belief is that there is only one way to govern your country, and that is pursuant to the wishes of the Pope. And that is exactly what George Bush has said. He has said, and I quote it in my book, that he desires to put in place the teachings of Pope John Paul II. And that is exactly what he has done. He has started a crusade, a papal crusade, and he is overthrowing the U.S. Constitution, which is a Protestant document, and restoring Jesuit absolutism over North America as existed in Mexico and in Europe. So, the doctrines of Rome never change, and when presidents serve Rome, their foreign policies and domestic policies can be traced back to the Dark Ages. We now shall go to what we call the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was the light, the Lord's beginning of the beating down of the Pope's temple power. And I will read a paragraph here written by R.W. Thompson in his The Footprints of the Jesuits, written in 1894. And he was the Secretary of the American Navy in the 1870s. And he writes, quote, in the preface, In the times before the Reformation, the temple affairs of governments were required to conform to the commands of the ecclesiastical authority, that is, the Pope. And it was held to be a necessary and essential part of religion, Romanism, that this union should be continued, no matter what might be the degree of popular ignorance and humiliation. Dear listeners, the Pope does not believe in the separation of a legitimate government and the power of the Church, of the papacy. There is no such thing that exists under the doctrines of Rome. The First Amendment, as written by the Baptist Calvinist James Madison, in the separation of, of a religious organization from a political government, is a maxim of Baptist doctrine. In fact, that is a Baptist distinctive. So Rome hates that. Rome hates the First Amendment, and so Rome has very cleverly united the papacy with the American government through a trusted third party, which is the Council on Foreign Relations. So we shall now begin with the Reformation as Luther meets Cajetan.
If you'd like to get a copy of this program, there are a few ways that we can help you. You may subscribe at LibertyRadioLive.com for only $45 a month, and you'll receive an MP3 CD weekly of all the First Amendment rights media... continuation 
of the papacy of the Dark Ages underground today, but back at this time it was open, and the Inquisition was feared by all, rich and poor. All you had to do was be accused of heresy, and you could be arrested at night with no witness, and this is why we have our Fourth and Fifth Amendment, to prevent an Inquisition from happening again in this country. So we are now going to review what happened, how God broke the power of the papacy in Europe, and he did it by getting his word into the language of the people. Um, the light of the Reformation, the New Day Star of the Reformation, was Wycliffe, when he began to put the low Latin Bible in the language of the English people. But the Lord used Erasmus, put together the Greek Testament, and then Erasmus's greatest student was William Tyndall. William Tyndall, the father of the English Bible, was the uh, man who did most of the translation, and it was his works that were consulted later on by those who wrote the Geneva Bible and the 801611. It was William Tyndall who was the one who got the English Bible into the Anglican Church so the people once could read the Bible for themselves and they needed no priest to tell them what it meant. And this is based upon a particular passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So as a, they began to read the Bible and they heard it in their own language, why then they realized they didn't need the priests anymore, that they didn't need the Pope anymore, that there was no need for word salvation anymore, because Romans 1.17 became paramount in their minds, and that was the verse of Martin Luther. And what is that? The just shall live by faith. In other words, you get justified before God by faith alone and not any works that you can possibly do. So you are justified by faith alone. And it was this revelation that caused Luther to come to the understanding that he needed to be saved by the grace of God and that salvation was a gift not to be earned by the edicts and decrees of the Pope. So as Luther then put the, uh, began to preach the great doctrines of the Bible, and he began to expose the great heresies of Rome, he now became the target for annihilation. And now we shall view this wonderful and great life of Germany's greatest preacher, Martin Luther. And apart from this German, we would have no political freedom in the earth today. It all springs from Martin Luther and is getting the Bible into the native language of the German people so that people could understand what God expected of them, what God decided to say about his son, and thus bringing repentance and faith in Christ. So we're now on page 452 of Dowling's The History of Romanism, under popery on a tottering throne. Um, we now begin uh, section 85. Before this letter of the Pope had reached Germany, uh, and while Luther was still fearing that he should be obliged to appear at Rome, a fortunate circumstance occurred to comfort his heart. He needed a friend into whose bosom he could pour out his sorrows and whose faithful love should comfort him in his hours of dejection. God sent him such a friend in Melanchthon, who, at the early age of 21, arrived at Wittenberg to enter upon the duties of his professorship on the 25th of August, just two days after the Pope had signed the brief institutions to Cardinal Cajetan in the letter to the Elector of Saxony. 
which, by the way, that letter called Luther a child of iniquity and a despiser of God. The order of Luther's appearance at Augsburg before the Cardinal Legate at length arrived. It was now with one of the princes of the Roman Church that Luther had to do. All his friends besought him not to set out. They feared that a snare might be laid for him on his journey or a design formed against his life. Some set about finding a place of concealment for him, and others from different quarters gave him the most alarming information. Count Albert of Mansfeld sent him a message to abstain from setting out because some great nobles had bound themselves by an oath to seize and strangle or drown him. But nothing could shake his resolution. Everywhere in the history of Luther and of the Reformation do we find ourselves in the presence of that intrepid spirit, that elevated morality, that boundless charity, which the first establishment of biblical Christianity had exhibited to the world. Quote, I am like Jeremiah, said Luther, at the moment we are speaking of, a man of strife and contention, but the more they increase their threatenings, the more they multiply my joy. My wife and children are well provided for. My lands and houses and all my goods are safe. They have already been they have already torn to pieces my honor and my good name. All I have left is my wretched body. Let them have it. They will then shorten my life but a few hours. But as to my soul, they shall not have that. He who resolves to bear the word of Christ to the world must expect death at every hour. Unquote. In accordance with the self-sacrificing spirit, Luther set out on foot on his perilous journey to Augsburg, accompanied by two faithful friends, Link and Leonard, and arrived at the monastery of the Augustines at that city on the 7th of October. In the following day, a crafty Italian courier named Sierra Longa paid Luther a visit to persuade the reformer to submission or to prepare him for his interview with the Cardinal Legate. The instructions given to Luther by this courtier of Rome are curious. Quote, Remember, said he, that you are to appear before the prince of the church. I will myself conduct you to him, but first let me tell you how you must appear in his presence. When you enter the room where he is sitting, you must prostrate yourself with your face to the ground. When he tells you to rise, you must kneel before him, and you must not stand erect till he orders you so to do, unquote. Luther had neglected to provide himself with a safe conduct. His friends advised him by no means to appear before the legate without one, as he would then be at the mercy of Cajetan. But should he obtain such a document, the legate could not imprison or harm him without persuading the emperor Maximilian to violate his faith. They took upon themselves the task of obtaining the necessary safe conduct from the emperor. Cajetan's plan was, no doubt, to compel Luther, if possible, to retract, and if he failed in that, to secure his person and to have him conveyed to Rome, where he would doubtless have shared the fate of Huss and Jerome, by the way, who were burned at the stake and whose safe conduct was violated. Hence, he was in hopes that Luther would apply for no safe conduct but entrust himself entirely to his mercy. A safe conduct is like a pass, a passport, to pass through the Holy Roman Empire with the protection of the emperor. And this, by the way, Maximilian would do. 
Carolina offered him to accompany Luther before the legate, but the reformer told him of the advice of his Osberg friends to procure safe conduct. Quote, beware of asking anything of the sort, unquote, required Siralaga quickly. You have no need of it whatsoever. The legate is well disposed towards you and quite ready to end the affair amicably. If you ask for a safe conduct, you will spoil all, unquote. <laughs> quote, my gracious lord, the elector of Saxony, unquote, replied Luther, who recommended me to several honorable men in his town. They advised me not to venture without a safe conduct. I ought to follow their advice. You see how the man of God follows the, follows the advice of his friends? Were I to neglect it and anything should befall me, then would write to the elector, my master, that I would not hearken to them. Luther persisted in his resolution, and Sierra Longa was obliged to return to his employer and report to him the failure of his mission at the very moment when, the fancy, when, the, when he fancied it would be crowned with success. The agents of the cardinal, who was exceedingly desirous to get Luther into his power without a safe conduct, soon renewed their importunities. Quote, the cardinal, said they, sends you assurance of his grace and favor. Why are you so afraid? And they endeavored by every possible argument to persuade him to wait upon the legate. He is so gracious that he is like a father, said one of these emissaries. But another, going close up to him, whispered, Do not believe what they say. There is no dependence to be placed upon his words. Luther persisted in his resolution. On the morning of Monday, the 16th of October, 1518, Sarah again renewed his persuasions. The courtier had made it a point to honor, of honor to succeed in his negotiations. The moment he entered in, asked in Latin, quote, Why do you not go to the cardinal? He is expecting you in the most indolent frame of mind. With him, the whole question is summed up in six letters. Revoca, retract. Come then with me. You have nothing to fear. Luther thought within himself that those were six very important letters. But, without further discussion, he replied, As soon as I have received a safe conduct, I will appear. Sir Longa lost his temper at these words. He persisted. He brought, he brought forward additional reasons for compliance. But Luther was immovable. The Italian courtier, still irritated, exclaimed, You imagine no doubt that the elector will take up arms in your favor and risk for your sake the loss of the dominions he inherits from his ancestors, unquote? God forbid, replied Luther. When all forsake you, ask the Italian, where will you then take refuge? Where, said Luther, smiling and looking upwards with the eye of faith? Under heaven. Sierra Longa was struck dumb by this sublime and unexpected reply. He soon left the house, leaped into his saddle, and visited Luther no more. Having soon after obtained his safe conduct, Luther appeared before the legate. On entering the room where the cardinal was waiting for him, Luther found him accompanied by the apostolical nuncio in Sierra Longa. His reception was cool, but civil. And according to the Roman etiquette, Luther, following the instructions of Sierra Longa, prostrated himself before the cardinal. When the latter told him to rise, he knelt. And when the command was repeated, he stood erect. Several of the most distinguished Italians of the Ligi's household entered the room in order to be present at the interview, impatient to see the German monk humble himself before the Pope's representative. The legate was silent. He expected, says a contemporary, that Luther would begin his recantation. 
But Luther waited reverently for the Roman prince to address him. Finding, however, that he did not open his lips, he understood his silence as an invitation to open the business and spoke as follows, quote, <clears throat> Most worthy father, upon the summons of his holiness the Pope, and at the desire of my gracious lord, the elector of Saxony, I appear before you as an humble, obedient son of the Holy Christian Church, Holy Catholic Church, and I acknowledge that it was I who published the propositions and thesis are the subject of inquiry. His 95 theses. I am ready to listen with all submission to the charges brought against me, and if I am in error to be instructed in the truth, unquote. The cardinal, who had determined to assume the tone of a kind and compassionate father towards an erring child, answered in the most friendly manner, commended Luther's humility, and expressed the joy he felt on beholding it, saying, quote, My dear son, you have filled all Germany with commotion by your dispute concerning indulgences. I hear that you are a doctor, well-skilled in the scriptures, and that you have many followers. If, therefore, you wish to be a member of the church and to have in the Pope a most gracious Lord, listen to me. After this exordium, exordium the legate did not hesitate to tell him all that he expected of him. So confident was he of his submission. Here, said he, are three articles which, acting under the direction of our most holy father, Pope Leo X, I am to propose to you. First, you must return to your duty. You must acknowledge your faults and retract your errors, your propositions and sermons. Secondly, you must promise to abstain for the future from propagating your opinions. And thirdly, you must engage to be more discreet and avoid everything that may grieve or disturb the church, unquote. Most worthy father, replied Luther, I request to be permitted to see the Pope's brief, by virtue of which you have received full power to negotiate this affair, unquote. Longa and the rest of the Italians of the Cardinal's train were struck with astonishment at such a demand, and although the German monk had already appeared to them a strange phenomenon, they were completely disconcerted so bold a speech. Christians familiar with the principles of justice desire to see them adhered to in proceedings against others or themselves, but those who are accustomed to act according to their own will are much surprised when required to proceed regularly and agreeably to form of law. Quote, Your demand, my son, replied Cajetan, cannot be complied with. You have to acknowledge your errors, to be careful for the future of what you teach, and not to return to your vomit, so that you may rest with care and anxiety... And then, acting by the command and on the authority of our most holy father, the Pope, I will adjust the whole affair. Dean then said Luther to inform me when I had erred. Now listen to this. At this request, the Italian courtiers, who had expected to see the poor German fall upon his knees and implore mercy, were still more astonished than before. Not one of them would have condescended to answer so impertinent a question, but the legate, who thought it scarcely generous to crush this feeble monk by the weight of all his authority and trust him wherever to his own learning for obtaining an easy victory, consented to tell Luther what he was accused of and said, quote, My beloved son, there are two propositions put forward by you which you must before all retract. First, the treasure of indulgences does not consist of the merits and sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
The man who receives the holy sacrament must have faith in the grace offered to him. Luther is to retract both these things. Both these propositions did indeed strike a death blow at the commerce of Rome. If the Pope had not power to dispose at will of the Savior's merits, if on receiving the paper in which the brokers of the church traded, men did not acquire a portion of that infinite righteousness, this paper currency lost its value and men would count it no better than a mere rag. Yeah, just like our Federal Reserve notes. And thus also with the sacraments. The indulgences were, in some sense, an extraordinary branch of commerce with Rome. The sacraments made part of her ordinary traffic. The revenue they yield was by no means small. But to assert that faith was necessary to make them productive of any real benefit of the soul of the Christian was to rob them of their attraction and the right in the sight of the people. For faith is not in the Pope's gift. It is beyond his power. He can come and can come from God alone. To declare its necessity was, therefore, to snatch from the hands of Rome both the speculation and the profits attached to it. <laughs> Should have been going a little bit farther. <clears throat> the Pope, said Ludigi, has authority and power over all things. Save the scriptures, replied Luther, with some warmth. Save the scriptures, exclaimed Cajetan. Do not you know that the Pope is higher than the councils? For he has recently condemned and punished the Council of Basel. After some further discussion, Luther declared in relation to one of the articles in dispute, quote, If I yielded anything there, I should be denying Christ. I cannot, therefore, and will not yield that point, but by God's help will hold it to the end, unquote. Cardinal Cajetan could hardly restrain his temper at this bold and decisive declaration, and exclaimed with some warmth, quote, Whether you will or will not, you must this very day Retract that article, or else for that article alone, I will proceed to reject and condemn all your doctrine. Unquote. I have no will but the Lord's, boldly declared Luther. He will do with me what seemeth good in his sight. But had I a hundred heads, I would rather lose them all than retract the testimony I have borne to the holy Christian faith. Okay, this, this confrontation between Luther and the Legate is a suitable portrait for Thomas Kincaid. Would to God that he would make a portrait of this. It would be absolutely stirring. Quote, I have not come here to argue with you, said Cajet. Retract or prepare to endure the punishment you have deserved. <laughs> Luther clearly perceived that this was impossible to end the affair by himself, not by a conference. His adversary was seated before him as though he himself were pope and required a humble submission to all that he said to him. Once he received Luther's answers, even when grounded on the Holy Scriptures, with shrugs and every kind of irony and contempt. Having, therefore, shown a disposition to withdraw, do you wish, said the legate to him, that I should give you a safe contact Repair to Rome, unquote. Nothing would have pleased Cajetan better than the acceptance of this offer. 
He would thus have got rid of an affair of which he began to perceive the difficulties, and Luther and his heresy would have fallen into the hands of those who would have known how to deal with him. But the reformer, who was sensible to the dangers that surrounded him, even at Augsburg, took care to refuse an offer that would have delivered him up, bound hand and foot, to the vengeance of his enemies. He rejected the proposal as often as Cajetan chose to repeat it, which he did several times. The league had concealed the chagrin he felt at Luther's refusal. He assumed an air of dignity and dismissed the monk with a compassionate smile under which he endeavored to hide his disappointment. And at the same time, with the politeness of one who hopes to have better success another time. So here Luther <clears throat> refuses to recant, and he's been dismissed by the legate. After two other interviews with the legate, of which the first may be regarded as a specimen, Luther saw that his powerful opponent would listen to no argument from Scripture and would be satisfied with nothing short of an unconditional retraction. A rumor, moreover, reached him that if he did not retract, he was to be seized and thrown into a dungeon. When the imperial counselors, through the Bishop of Trent, had informed the legate that Luther was under the protection of the emperor's safe conduct, he had passionately replied, Be it so, but I shall do what the Pope enjoins me. We have already seen that the Pope orders that the Pope's orders were to secure his person, detain him in safe custody, and bring him as a Posed and bring him as a uh, bring him as a I have lost my place. Pardon me. As a posed hardly for four centuries ago. Lost the page. Pardon me. So anyway, he is supposed to go to Rome as a prisoner to Rome. But what happens? Luther is saved. Luther does not go to Rome. And I'll pick up Luther's escape from Wittenberg. Quote, for these reasons, oh, I got here, prisoner to Rome. His friends had advised him before the opportunity might be irrevocably lost to return from Augsburg. They knew Cajetan well enough to be satisfied that he was scruple at no means to get Luther into his power, and the lessons of Constance had taught them how little an emperor's safe conduct might avail with popish moralists to save a victim from the flames. They suspected that the legate might be even then in communication with the emperor to induce him to revoke or to violate his safe conduct. For these reasons, they advised Luther to seize the opportunity of returning to Wittenberg and he followed their advice. They advised him to take every possible precaution, fearing that if his departure were known, it might be opposed. He followed their directions as well as he could. A horse that Stolpitz had left at his disposal was brought to the door of the convent. Once more he bids adieu to his brethren. He then mounts and sets out without a bridle for his horse, without boots or spurs, and unarmed. The magistrate of the city had sent him as a guide a horseman who was well acquainted with his roads. This man conducts him in the dark through the silent streets of Augsburg. They direct their course to a little gate in the wall of the city. One of the counselors, Langmental, had ordered that it should be opened to him. He is still in the legate's power. The hand of Rome is still over him. 
Doubtless, if the Italians knew that their prey was escaping, the cry of pursuit would be raised. Who knows whether the intrepid adversary of Rome may not still be seized and thrown into prison. At last, Luther and his guide arrive at the little gate. They pass through. They are out of Augsburg, and putting their horses into a gallop, they soon leave the city far behind. Luther urged his horse and kept the poor animal at full speed. He called to mind the real or supposed flight of John Huss, the manner in which he was overtaken, and the assertion of his adversaries, who affirmed that Huss having, by his flight, annulled the emperor's safe conduct, they had a right to condemn him to the flames. However, these uneasy feelings did not long occupy Luther's mind. Having got clear from the city where he had spent ten days under the terrible hand of Rome, which had already crushed so many thousand witnesses for the truth and shed so much blood, at large breathing in the open air, traversing the villages and plains, and wonderfully delivered by the arm of the Lord, his whole soul overflowed with praise. He might well say, our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we are delivered. Our help is in the name of God, who made heaven and earth, unquote. Thus was the heart of Luther filled with joy, but his thoughts again reverted to Theoville, the cardinal, he thought would have been well pleased to get me into his power and send me to Rome. He is no doubt mortified that I have escaped from him. He thought he had me in his clutches at Osbury. He thought he held me fast, but he was holding an eel by the tail. Shame that these people should set so high a price upon me. They would give my many crowns to have me in their power, whilst our Savior Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver." Unquote. Luther reached Wittenberg on the 30th of October, and found on his arrival that the disappointed legate had written a letter to the elector, breathing vengeance against the contemptible monk and that, that had escaped him, and earnestly entreating Frederick to send him as a prisoner to Rome, or at least to banish him from his territory. The elector refused to deliver up Luther to the tender mercies of Rome, and the reformer appeared from the derision of the Pope to a general council. This appeal was made at Wittenberg. Thus we see the escape of Luther from Cardinal Cage. Fight the fight. We are here to equip you. Because you love the truth. LibertyRadioLive.com If you'd like to get a copy of this program, there are a few ways that we can help you. You may subscribe at LibertyRadioLive.com for only $45 a month. And you'll receive an MP3 CD weekly of all the First Amendment Rights Media Group programs. As a bonus, we'll send you a password for our audio archives online. That's a $15 value. Or you can request any month of any program on one MP3 CD for a minimum donation of only $20. For any single program on tape, MP3 CD, or CD for only $15. You can do all this online at LibertyRadioLive.com. Just follow the instructions to make a donation or subscribe. Don't do Internet. 
then call 559-781-3773, 559-781-3773, and we'll be honored to help you. Thank you from all of us here at the First Amendment Rights Media Group. FlyingEagleGold.com says don't buy the sizzle of that steak until you understand the cost. In other words, don't buy the high being dispensed by the rare coin pitchman of the alternative media until you understand the full story. Jeffrey Bennett has been a purveyor of wealth protection, gold and silver bullion, and rare collectible coins for over 17 years. His personal experience reaches back to 1958. FlyingEagleGold.com offers the most private, non-confiscable gold and silver coinage in the world at a very competitive cost. And Jeffrey takes personal pride in putting your interests ahead of all else. You're invited to call Flying Eagle Gold at 623-327-1778. That's 623-327-1778 for the truth about protecting your wealth. Join Jeffrey Bennett each day, Monday through Friday, when he hosts Read Between the Lines, right here on LibertyRadioLive.com. If you read the history books, the most often asked question to Southerners was this, why did you fight? And the most often given answer is, because you're here. In other words, the South did not invade the North, the North invaded the South. Was it the Civil War or War of Federal Aggression? John Weaver sets the record straight in this DVD series on the Civil War from the Old Past Christian History Conference. Was there a war to set the slaves free? Or was it a war to enslave us all? Get this DVD and judge for yourself. War of Federal Aggression. The truth seems strange only because we've been indoctrinated with a fiction. War of Federal Aggression. Get it today. Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from LibertyRadioLive.com. Order online today or call 559-781-3773. 559-781-3773. This is Eric John Phelps once again with uh, our series that we're beginning here uh, with regard to the papacy and the Dark Ages and the Reformation. And we're in now our last half hour that we will continue to deal with Martin Luther and the Reformation. Reading from Dowling's, John Dowling's The History of Romanism in 1845 is a classic. It's one of the books that I have scanned into my 13 rare book CD with uh, my Vatican Assassins book. Of course, Vatican Assassins is available uh, from my website, uh, vaticanassassins.org. It's uh, 1,836 pages with many pictures, and this CD, uh, detached free CD, has this book in it. Okay, The History of Romanism by John Dowling, page 462. Now that Luther has escaped uh, uh, Worms, or he has escaped uh, Osberg, he now is on his way to Worms. In the bull of Leo against Leo, Luther, he thus invokes the prince of the apostles, quote, Arise, O Peter, remember thy holy Roman church, mother of all the churches and mistress of the faith. Arise, O Paul, for a new 
uh, Porphyry is here, attacking thy doctrines and the holy popes and our predecessors. Finally arise, O assembly of all the saints, holy church of God, and intercede for us with God Almighty. As soon as this bull shall be published, continues the pope, the bishops are to search diligently for the writings of Martin Luther in which these errors are contained, and to burn them publicly and solemnly in the presence of the clergy and the laity. As to Martin himself, what is there in the name of heaven we have not done? Imitating the goodness of God Almighty, we are ready, notwithstanding, to receive him again into the bosom of the church, and we allow him sixty days to forward to us his recantation in writing, attended by two prelates, or rather, which would be more satisfactory, to present himself before us in Rome, that none may any more doubt his obedience. In the meantime, he must from this moment cease preaching, teaching, and writing the space of sixty days. We, by these presents, sentence himself and his adherents as open and contumacious heretics. By the way, I think it's interesting that Malcolm X was silenced by the Masonic Elijah Muhammad for sixty days also, I believe. Interesting. Rome's, ta Rome's tactics are always the same. Luther quailed not before those papal thunders, which for centuries had made the mightiest monarchs tremble on their thrones. On the 6th of October, he published his famous tract on the Babylonian captivity of the church. He commences his work by ironically stating all the advantages for which he is indebted to his enemies. Quote, whether I will or no, says he, I live more and more every day, urged on as I am by so many celebrated masters. Two years ago, I attacked indulgences, but with such faltering indecision that I am now ashamed of it. It, however, is not to be wondered at, for then I had to rule forward the rock by myself, unquote. He then returns thanks to Dr. Eck and to his other adversaries. Quote, I denied, he continues, that the papacy was from God, but admitted that it stood by human right. But now, after having read all the subtleties on which these worthless, uh, on which these worthies set up their idol, I know that papacy is nothing but the reign of Babylon and the violence of the mighty hunter Nimrod. <laughs> I therefore request all my friends and all booksellers that they will burn the books I have before written on the subject and that in their stead substitute this single proposition, quote, the papacy is a general chase led by the Bishop of Rome and having for its object the snaring and ruining of souls, unquote. Luther concludes his fierce attack upon the Popish Babylon as follows, quote, I hear that new papal excommunications have been concocted against me. If this be so, this book may be regarded as a part of my future recantation. The rest will follow shortly in proof of my obedience and the whole will by Christ's help form a collection such as Rome has never yet seen or heard of. On the 10th of December following, Luther took the final step which rendered reconciliation impossible. On that day, a placard was affixed to the walls of the University of Wittenberg. It contained an invitation to the professors and students to repair at the hour of nine in the morning to the East Gate beside the Holy Cross. A great number of doctors and youths assembled, and Luther, putting himself at their head, led the procession to the appointed spot. Now listen to this. <laughs> a scaffold had already been erected. One of the oldest among the masters of art soon set fire to it. As the flames arose, Luther drew nigh and cast into the midst of them the canon law. That's the law of the papacy. Threw it in the fire. The decretals, 
the Clementines, the extravagance of the popes, and a portion of the works of Eck and Emser. When these books had been reduced to ashes, Luther took the pope's bull in his hand, held it up, and said aloud, Since thou hast afflicted the Lord's Holy One, may fire unquenchable afflict and consume thee. And thereupon he threw it into the flames. <laughs> into the flames. He then, with much in, uh, composure, bent his steps toward the city, and the crowd of doctors, professors, and students, with loud expressions of applause, returned to Wittenberg in his train. The decretal, said Luther, are like a body whose face is as fair as a virgin's, but its limbs are forceful as those of a lion, and its tail is that of a wily serpent. In all the papal laws, there is not a single word that teaches what Jesus Christ truly is. My enemies, he said again, by burning my books, may have disparaged the truth in the minds of the common people and occasion the loss of souls. For that reason, I have burned their books in my turn. This is a mighty struggle, but just begun. Hitherto I have been only jesting with the Pope. I entered upon this work in the name of God. He will bring it to a close without, without my aid, by his own power. If they dare to burn my books, of which it is no vain boast to say that they contain more of the gospel than all the Pope's books put together, I may with far better reason burn theirs, which are wholly worthless. By this act, the daring reformer distinctly announced his separation from the Pope and the Papal Church. He now accepted the excommunication which Rome had pronounced. He proclaimed in the face of Christendom that between him and the Pope there was war even unto the death. Like the Roman who burned the vessels that had conveyed him to the enemy's shore, he left himself no resource but to advance, but to advance and offer battle. After this, there could be no more peace with Rome. Listener, this is the true Martin Luther. Well, Martin Luther is ultimately brought to the Grand Diet in Worms, and we shall examine a few paragraphs here. Strenuous efforts were employed to prevent Luther from appearing at Worms. His friends trembled for his safety and his life. His enemies dreaded what some of them had already witnessed his reasoning, eloquence, and knowledge of the scriptures so superior to their own. The papal party tempted him with the hope of an amicable adjustment. The advocates of truth sought to excite his apprehensions. All their efforts failed. Quote, Tell your master, he said to a messenger from Spalatin, that, that though there should be as many devils and worms as there are tiles on the door, on the roofs of the houses, I would go. <laughs> Uninfluenced by persuasions and undaunted by threats, Luther entered Worms on the 16th of April. The day after his arrival, he was summoned to attend the Diet. On the morning of that day, his soul had endured unwanted depression, almost amounting to anguish. But in his distress, he sought the Lord with strong crying and tears and was graciously heard. Peace returned, and holy undaunted courage again filled his spirit. He cheerfully attended the officer who was appointed to conduct him to the hall of audience. He reached the place with some difficulty, so great was the crowd that thronged every avenue in eager curiosity to see the man whose fame had spread throughout Germany and on whom the thunders of the Vatican had hitherto fallen harmlessly. At length he stood before the august assembly. The emperor occupied the throne. This is the Holy Roman Emperor. Next to him sat his brother, the Archduke Ferdinand. 
Six electors of the empire were present, 24 dukes, eight margraves, 30 prelates, seven ambassadors, the deputies of ten free cities, princes, counts, and barons, the papal nuncios, and all 204 noble and illustrious personages. The countenances of many betrayed deep inward concern and anxiety. Luther had held communion with God and enjoyed perfect peace, unquote. On the table was laid a collection of his writings. He was asked whether he acknowledged them as his productions and whether he was prepared to retract the opinions they contained. To the first question, he answered in the affirmative. To the second, he replied that the question was very serious and important and ought not to be answered without due consideration, lest he should in any way injure the cause of truth. He asked, therefore, for a brief delay, so reasonable a request could not be refused. Next day he appeared again. The questions were repeated. Luther then addressed the assembly. He had acknowledged, he said, the books on the table to be his. Their contents differed much from each other. In some, he had treated of faith and works, unmasking the errors of the age. He could not retract them without treachery to the gospel. A second class consisted of writings in which he had exposed the enormous corruptions and abuses of the papacy. These were so notorious and had been so long and so justly the subject of loud complaint in Germany that it would be worse than folly to suppress the works in which they were held to, to, up to public reprobation. In the third piece, he had in some of his books attacked individuals who had advocated existing evils, and he was willing to confess, for he could not pretend to be free from fault, that he had sometimes written with unbecoming violence. He could not retract the sentiments advanced in those writings because such a course would encourage the enemies of the truth and embolden them in their opposition. Wherefore, he prayed that instead of persisting in the demand for retractions, the Diet would take measures to convince him from the scriptures of his error. As soon as he should be convinced, he would immediately acknowledge it. Quote, you have not answered the question, unquote, said the Chancellor of the Archbishop of Treves, to whom the management of this part of the business was entrusted? A clear and express reply is required. Will you or will you not retract? Unquote. The reformer's answer was worthy of him. Quote, Since your most serene majesty and the princes require a simple answer, I will give it thus. Unless I shall be convinced by proofs from Scripture or by evident reason, for I believe neither in popes nor in councils, since they have frequently erred in, con in contradicting themselves. I cannot choose but to adhere to the word of God, which has possession of my conscience. Nor can I possibly, nor will I ever make any recantation, since it is neither safe nor honest to act contrary to conscience. Here I take my stand. I cannot do otherwise. God be my help. Amen. This is, these are Luther's immortal words before the Diet of Worms. Remember, there are 204 nobles here, including the Holy Roman Emperor. There's a cardinal here. Uh, any individual would be shaking in his boots, but God has given Luther the strength to do and to say these things. The speech made deep impression. The emperor himself was struck with admiration. If you will not retract, resume the chancellor, the emperor and the states of the empire will see what ought to be done with an obstinate heretic. 
God be my help, rejoined Luther, I can retract nothing. He then withdrew, leaving the Diet in deliberation. When he was called in again, another effort was made. His appeal to Scripture was treated with contempt, since he had revived errors which had been condemned by the Council of Constance, as if the authority of the Council of Constance were superior to that of the Word of God. In conclusion, the Chancellor said, The Emperor commands you to say simply yes or no, whether you mean to maintain whatever you have advanced, or whether you will retract a part. Unquote. I have no other answer to give than what I have already given, replied the courageous reformer. Despite of the persuasions or menaces of his opposers, he persisted in this noble determination. In reply to the entreaties of the Archbishop of Treves, who labored hard to induce him to submit to the Diet, I will put my person and my life in the Emperor's hands, said he, but the word of God never. He claimed for every Christian the right of private judgment. If he consented to a council, it would be only on condition that the council should be compelled to judge according to the scriptures. <laughs> Protracted debates followed. Some counseled the violation of the safe conduct and urged the emperor to seize Luther and put him to death. But the high-minded princes of Germany scorned the base proposal. Charles himself, bigoted as he was, revolted at it. If good faith were banished from the whole earth, he exclaimed, it ought still to find refuge in the courts of kings, unquote. At length, the adversaries of the reformers saw that it was useless to labor longer with him to induce him to submit, and other measures must be adopted. Efforts were made by some of Luther's bitterest popish adversaries, but without success, to induce the emperor, like his predecessor Sigismund, to violate his safe conduct and to leave Luther as Sigismund had left Huss to the tender mercies of the church. And it was in reply to these suggestions that Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uttered that expression already mentioned in the account of the cruel and treacherous murder of Huss, quote, I should not like to blush like Sigismund, unquote. Well, what we have is Luther then is placed under a ban of the empire and threatening the same to all to protect him. And here is what it reads. For by this end, and on pain of incurring the penalty of treason, we hereby forbid you to receive the said Luther from the moment when the said term is expired or to harbor or to give him meat or drink or by word or act, publicly or in private, to aid or abet him. We further enjoin you to seize or cause him to be seized, whether he may be, and to bring him before us without delay or hold him in endurance until you shall be informed how to deal with him and have received the reward due to your cooperation in this holy work. As to his adherents, you are enjoined to seize upon him, putting them down and confiscating their property. And if anyone, whatever may be his rank, should dare to act contrary to this decree, of our imperial majesty, we commend that he be placed under the ban of the empire, that each one observe this decree. So, after the safe conduct expires, Luther is to be condemned. Well, what happens? We now read of the Lord's delivering Luther. In the meanwhile, Luther had left Worms, and after spending a day or two on his way to his native village of Eisenach, was on the road to Wittenberg, accompanied by 
Emsdorf and his brother James. He skirted the woods of Thuringen, taking the new path that leads to Waltershausen. As the wagon was passing a narrow defile near the ruined church of Gilsbach, a short distance from the castle of Altenstein, suddenly a noise was heard, and in a moment five horsemen, masked and armed from head to foot, fell upon them. His brother James, as soon as he caught sight of the assailants, jumped from the wagon and fled as fast as he could without uttering a word. The driver would have resisted. Stop, cried a hoarse voice, and instantly one of the attacking party threw him to the earth. Another of the masks grasped Amsdorf and held him fast. While this was doing, the three horsemen laid hold on Luther, maintaining profound silence. They forced him to alight, and throwing a knight's cloak over his shoulders, set him on a horse, set him on and led a horse that they had with them. This done, the two other masks let go Amsdorf and the wagoner, and the whole five sprang into their saddles. One dropped his cap, but they did not stop to recover it. And in the twinkling of an eye, the party and their prisoner were lost in the thick gloom of the forest. At first they took the direction of, of a particular direction, and they rapidly changed their route, and without quitting the forest, rode first in one direction and then in another, turning their horses' feet to baffle any attempt to track their course. Luther, little used to riding, was soon overcome with fatigue. His guides permitted him to stop for a few instants. He rested on the earth beside a breech tree, a, a, a beech tree and drank some of the water from the spring which still bears his name. His brother James, continuing his flight from the scene of their encounter, reached Walter's house on that evening. The driver hastened to throw himself into the wagon in which Amsdorf, out of running man, galloped his horse at full speed and conducted Luther's friend to Wittenberg. At Walter's house at Wittenberg in the open country, the villages and towns on route, the news spread that Luther was carried off. Some rejoiced at the report, but the greater number were struck with astonishment and indignation, and soon a cry of grief resounded throughout Germany. Luther had fallen into the hands of his enemies, unquote. These apprehensions, however, were groundless. The abduction of Luther was planned by his friends and protectors, with the concurrence of the elector Frederick, and as some supposed with the connivance even of the emperor himself, who, notwithstanding his desire to court the favor of the Pope and to uphold the religion of Rome, might yet have been unwilling to incur the indignation of Germany by delivering up Luther to the flames. Be this as it may, without doubt, the hand of God was visible in thus providing his faithful servant with a retreat from the rage of his bloodthirsty enemies. The Popery must be robbed of its prey, and his faithful servant must have leisure and retirement to continue his bold exposure of the mother of harlots, and above all, to give the New Testament from which he had learned the doctrines he preached to the Germans in their native tongue. These objects were accomplished by his mysterious and providential abduction. The place to which Luther was conducted was a mysterious, uh, with his mysterious guise was the lofty and isolated castle of Wartburg an ancient residence of the Landgraves of Thuringia. He took away his ecclesiastical habit, attiring him in the knightly dress prepared for him and enjoining him to let his beard and hair grow that no one in the castle might know who he was. The attendants of the castle at Warburg were to know the prisoner only by the name of Knight George. Luther scarcely recognized himself under his singular metamorphosis. 
Let the link to his meditations yet lead you to revolve the extraordinary events that have befallen the worms, the uncertain future that awaited him in his new and strange abode. During the ten months of the reformers' captivity, the knight George was not idle. In the castle of Warburg, Luther composed works which mildly tended to shake the Romish power in Germany, auricular confession, private masses, and monistic vows were the themes on which his resistless uh, eloquence was employed. He held them up to the indignant reprobation of men and satisfactorily proved that they were all alike opposed the word of God and to Christian freedom. But his greatest work was the translation of the New Testament into the German language. This also was executed at Wartburg. It is the noblest monument of his genius and was the most precious gift that Germany had yet received. The volume was published in September 1522 and was received with gratitude and joy by those who loved the truth. But it was denounced and vilified in many places publicly burned by the bigoted Romanists. Well, this is the story of Martin Luther. And this is the story of really the father of the Protestant Reformation. And had it not been for Martin Luther, there would have been no spreading of the Word of God in Northern Europe, in the, in the founding of uh, the free Protestant-based republics of Germany and Holland and Denmark and English Commonwealth and uh, the Republic of South Africa and Rhodesia, ultimately, and the United States and Canada, these are the Western Protestant white nations that were established to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Martin Luther was the one who made it possible, the one whom the Lord used to accomplish this. Germany went on to be a great nation. It became the hub and the most powerful commercial entity in the empire. And later, when the Second Reich was established by Bismarck in 1871, it was a Protestant Reich. It was a Protestant Holy Roman Empire, so to say. And uh, Germany became the most powerful uh, nation in Europe. It became the most advanced in its creations, in its arts and sciences, all because of one thing, that Martin Luther got the language, the German people, the Bible in their own language, contrary to what the Jesuits sought to do with the Council of Trent. Well, this is... Our first half is our review of the Dark Ages of Pope Hildebrand and Innocent III, the two absolute dictatorial, vicious, and cruel popes that the Jesuits would like to bring back in their restoration of the Dark Ages, which is the New Age movement. And then the second half of this two-hour period, we reviewed the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and its leader, Martin Luther, when he championed the doctrine of the just shall live by faith when he condemned the doctrine of transubstantiation, when he held forth the doctrine of there is only salvation in Christ and that the word of God was supreme above all the Pope's bulls and councils. Our next, our next uh, section will be on the devil's establishment of the Jesuit order in his person of Ignatius Loyola. And we shall see. But that the following 500 years are nothing more than the warfare between Luther and Loyola, the Reformation versus the Counter-Reformation. There John Phelps.
in World War II in the 1940s. And the charge against the accused persons was not the possession of a Bible, but of an English Bible, or Book of the New Law of England, or Book of the New Law of England, unquote. Afterwards, when the Reformation fairly began, nothing seemed to have alarmed and enraged the Romish priesthood so much as the spread of English Bibles. It was this that cost the martyred reformer Tyndall his life. Tyndall was the father of the English Bible. He was burned because he would translate and circulate the scriptures. The relentless enmity with which he was persecuted and finally hunted to death by Sir Thomas More and others tells a tale which he who runs may read. The priests well knew and well the priests knew and well that the game was up if the people once saw the inside of the Bible. He might as well have stopped the tide rising at Chepsaw to prevent Jupiter's satellites revolving around him as to stop the progress of the Protestant cause when the laity once began to read the scriptures. In vain, Bishop Tunstall seized the book and Bishop Bonner burned it at Paul's cross. Its leading contents and principles ran through the land like fire, and from that period the Pope's cause in England was shaken to the center. You that read the Bible daily and delight in the law of the Lord, never forget that you owe that Bible to the Reformation. For another thing, we owe to the Reformation an open road to the throne of grace and the great fountain of peace with God. That blessed road had long been blocked up and made impassable by heaps of rubbish of man's invention. Under pretense of mending and improving the road, the divines of Rome had spoiled it altogether. He who desired to obtain forgiveness had to seek it through a jungle of priests, saints, merry worship, masses, penances, confessions, absolution, and the like, so that there might as well have been no throne of grace at all. The huge mass of rubbish was shoveled out of the way by the reformers. The doctrine of our glorious 11th article was everywhere preached and published and proclaimed. It's the 11th article of the Anglican Confession of the Articles. People were taught that justification was by faith without the deeds of the law, and that every heavy-laden sinner on earth had a right to go straight to the Lord Jesus Christ for remission of sins uh, uh, without waiting for, po for pope or priest, confession or absolution, masses or extreme unction. From that time, the backbone of English popery was broken. You that are walking by faith and enjoying peace with God by simple trust in the precious blood of atonement, never forget that you owe its priceless privilege to the Reformation. We owe to the Reformation a true idea of Christian worship. In the days when Romanism ruled England undisturbed, the service of God's house must have been most Englishmen a mysterious performance which left them entirely in the hands of the priests. If they were present at any church service, they could only be present as sleeping partners or passive, ignorant spectators. It was a mere formal, histronic worship to which the laity could only bring their bodies, but in which their minds and reason and spirit and understanding could take no part at all. The solemn farce was completely stopped by the reformers. They laid down the great principle of our 
24th article. It is a thing plainly repugnant to the word of God and the custom of the primitive church to have public prayer in the church, to minister the sacraments in a tongue not understood by the, of, of the people, unquote. They introduced into every English church the English Bible, an English prayer book, English preaching, simple plain services, and a simple unthreatening, un, un, untheatrical administration of Christ to sacraments. Of course, they could not make the people Christians, but from the Isle of Wight to Berwick-on-Tweed, and from the Land's End to the north of Forland, a worship was set up in every church which the poorest laborer might understand. We owe to the Reformation a true notion of the office of a Christian minister. Before the eyes of Englishmen were opened by the Bible, there was a settled idea in all men's lands that the Christian ministry was a sacerdotal ministry, like that of the Jews, and that every clergyman was a sacrificing priest. The clergy was supposed to hold the keys to heaven and to be practically mediators between God and man. The natural result that they generally became spiritual tyrants and were exalted to a position which was enough to turn the head of any mortal man. Placed far too high, the priests became despots. Placed far too low, the lady became slaves. The reformers brought the office of the clergy down to its scriptural level. They stripped it entirely of any sacerdotal character. They cast out the words sacrifice and altar in the prayer book. And though they retained the word priest, they retained it only in the sense of presbyter or elder. They taught the people everywhere that the clergy were not lords of the church, but like Paul and Timothy, its servants. Philippians 1.1. Ambassadors, messengers, witnesses, evangelists, teachers and ministers of the word and sacraments. Above all, they declared, as the ordination of the church shows, that the chief business of a Christian minister is to, quote, preach the word, to be diligent in prayer, in the reading of the scriptures, and to lay aside the study of the world and flesh, unquote. And as to any power of the keys and binding and loosing, they taught, as Jules Apology distinctly informs us, that it was to be exercised by preaching the gospel to the penitent and setting before him an open door, and by warning sinners that, continuing in sin, they would find heaven's gate shut against them. You that know the value of a true Christian minister and the immense superiority of the pulpit to the confessional, never forget that for a clear light on this point, you are indebted to the Reformation. Finally, we owe to the Reformation a right standard of Christian holiness. Before the days of Henry VIII, it was held by all that a monastic life and vows of celibacy were the only ways to attain eminent sanctity and escape sin. Myriads of men and women were continually becoming monks and nuns under the vain idea of becoming religious. The reformers cut up by the roots this most fallacious idea by dissolving religious houses and dispersing their inhabitants. The thing was done roughly, no doubt, and the property of the abbeys and monasteries was disgracefully misapplied. But the measure was a wise one, and like a severe surgical operation, it saved health at the cost of temporary suffering. The great scriptural principle was established that true religion is to be seen, not retiring into holes and corners and fleeing from difficulties, but in doing our duty in every position to which God calls us, and manfully resisting the devil and overcoming him, that true holiness is to be exhibited. 
The Reformers ordered the Ten Commandments to be set up in every church and taught to every child, and the duty toward God and our neighbor to be set forth in the Old Catechism. They refused to give the slightest encouragement to the plausible notion of becoming saints by shrinking or shirking the duties of our station. It is not too much to say that in process of time this new principle had an elevating and purifying effect on the whole tone of English morals. If England, with all her faults, has a higher standard of daily life than most countries, let us never forget that we owe it to the Reformation. By the way, a study was done several years ago, and I have a copy of it, that the Protestant nations, when they were reading the Bible, had a much higher moral standard than Catholic nations who did not read it. And, of course, the reason was because of the Reformation. Such is the brief and condensed account of the positive blessings which the Reformation has conferred upon England. I have purposely done little more than name them because they are not bygone things like popish superstitions, but living privileges with which we are all familiar. We bask in the full sunshine of them. They are part of the air we breathe. They are a rich inheritance which every resident in England, unconsciously, I fear, in many cases enjoys to this day. We have neither an adequate conception of the evils from which the Reformation freed us nor the enormous good which you brought in. But this I am bold to assert. Whatever England is among the nations of the earth, as a Christian country, whatever political liberty we have, whatever lighter freedom in religion, whatever purity and happiness there is in our homes, whatever protection and care for the poor, we owe it to the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation found Englishmen steeped in ignorance and left them in possession of knowledge found them without Bibles and left them with a Bible in every church, found them in darkness and left them in comparative light, found them priest-ridden and left them enjoying the liberty which Christ bestows, found them strangers to the blood of atonement, to faith and grace and holiness, and left them, excuse me, with the key to those things in their hands, from, from them blind and left them see, from them slaves and left them free. Forever let us thank God for the Reformation. It lighted a candle which ought never to be extinguished or allowed to grow dim. And forever let us remember that the Reformation was won for us by the blood of the martyrs, quite as much by their preaching and praying, writing and legislation. It was forged in the fires of Oxford and Smithfield. It cost the lives of one archbishop, four bishops, and 280 other men and women who died rather than give place to popery. Shall we in this century talk lightly of the great work they did? That's the 19th century, by the way. Shall we hold cheaply the privileges they won? Shall we entertain for a moment the ideal of forsaking Reformation principles and going back to Rome? Once more I say, God forbid, the man who counsels such a base apostasy and suicidal following must be judicially blind. The iron collar has been broken. Let us not put it on again. The prison has been thrown open. Let us not resume the yoke and return to our chain. Again, this is an essay by Dr. John Charles Ryle in the late 1800s, quote, What do we owe to the Reformation? And indeed, this is the truth. Many of God's people suffered awful deaths rather than submit to popery. And I mean impaled on spikes, the horrible tortures of the Inquisition, the 
the, the being buried alive to the women and being burned with fire for the men who merely had a Bible in their home. We must remember that the very foundation of America, according to President Andrew Jackson, was the Bible, because he, quote, he said, quote, that, sir, the Bible, is the foundation upon, this, upon which this republic rests. So without the Bible, we are not America. Without the Bible, we are not a Bible-believing Christian nation. And that is what we are today. That is what England is today, with less than 3% of her people attending any form of church, Protestant church service. Well, <clears throat> this leads us now to Jesuit order and the founding of the Jesuit order. And we shall read of this man, Ignatius Loyola, who was this unbelievable founder and who had a tremendous uh, an iron will that he would never, never give up until he accomplished his goal. We will read from the great German preacher, the great German historian, uh, Theodor Greisinger. Uh, he was a, a father historian in many ways to the German people. And the title of his book is The Jesuits, A Complete History of Their Open and Secret Proceedings from the Foundation of the Order to the Present Time. And the present time was 1873, the year after the Jesuits had been expelled from Germany. We read in this particular work concerning Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order. We shall start on the first page. Chapter 1, Chapter 2, The Vicissitudes of the New Saint and the Seven First Jesuits. To Jerusalem and Palestine for the conversion of the Turks was now the watchword of the converted Loyola. And, in fact, he betook himself immediately at the commencement of the year 1523 towards Barcelona in order to embark from there, first of all, to Italy. Money had he none, but that he did not distress himself, for being already accustomed to beg, he soon collected enough, not only to keep himself from starving, but to pay the passage money to Gaeta and the Neapolitan dominions namely Italy. Having arrived there, he proceeded forthwith, further towards Rome, always begging his way, reaching it on Palm Sunday. Remember, this is the Ignatius Loyola, who was a noble of Spain, who was wounded in the Battle of Pamplona, who had his leg reset with a horrible resetting of the French uh, commander, whose doctor reset his leg only to be wind up shorter than his other leg. Therefore, it was this Loyola who had his leg deliberately broken and reset again and stretched and pulled, hoping that his leg would be longer. And when his leg healed, began to heal, he found out that it was, again, too short. So what he instructed his servant was to break the leg and stretch it on the rack, going through an awful, horrible pain. And this Loyola observed that his leg, again, healed short, and he had a perpetual limp. But this is an example of his determination, and it is now reflected in his trip to Palestine. Having arrived there, he proceeded forthwith further towards Rome, always begging his way, reaching it on Palm Sunday. His first 
care naturally enough was to perform his devotions in all the stations and churches where pilgrims were wont to resort. He also had the unspeakable good fortune on Good Friday, the 5th of April, to receive along with other pilgrims the blessing of His Holiness, Pope Hadrian VI. And according to some of his biographers, he was permitted to kiss the Pope's foot. But that as it may, I have only to remark that Inegio continued to support himself by begging, and that he generally passed the night in a miserable shed. On the 12th of April, he, pro he prosecuted his journey further towards Venice, always being understood on foot, and begging his way. But although he was now so used to this mode of traveling, he this time nearly fell a victim to it, as from his miserable appearance, he was universally looked upon as a plague-stricken person, and on that account not to be allowed to enter any town, seeing that the plague at the time was raging in a truly unmerciful manner in Upper Italy. He was therefore often compelled not only to sleep in the open air, which proved very prejudicial to his health, but he also found on this account little opportunity of soliciting alms, and accordingly at times endured frightful sufferings from hunger. At last he succeeded in reaching Venice and contrived to introduce himself to the gate without detention by the sentries. He had no longer any lack of nourishment, as many benevolent hearts are everywhere to be found, and fortune favored him so much that the Spaniard of rank, the Duke Andre Guti, obtained for him a free passage in an Italian state galley to Jaffa in Palestine. It nearly went badly, however, with him and his ship, on which he embarked on the 14th of July. Having plenty of spare time during the voyage, he employed in it preaching better manners to the sailors, accustomed as they were to swearing in obscene language, and being provoked thereby, they nearly threw him into the sea. But God and the captain of the ship protected him, and he thus reached his intended destination on the 1st of September in safety. He was now in Palestine, which he had so long earnestly desired to visit. So proceeding to Jerusalem with a caravan of pilgrims, he arrived there in good condition on the 4th of September. But scarcely had he visited the holy places and performed his devotions to the different spots over which Christ had wandered 1,500 years before than he hastened to carry out the great aim he was desirous of accomplishing. In other words, he presented himself forthwith to the provincial father of the Franciscans and craved permission to commence his work of preaching and converting, namely the Muslims. The provincial entering into conversation with the new laborer in the church fold found to his great astonishment that the latter was not only completely ignorant of the language and religion of the Turks, but that the same was the case even as regards Christianity itself, Catholicism itself, that it is to say in theology, quote-unquote, the knowledge which Christ taught, he was quite a tyro. And for such a thoroughly ignorant man who was also a perfectly beggarly and vagabond appearance, to believe himself fit for such a weighty undertaking as the education of those who do not believe in Christian or Roman Catholic dogma, or religion, appeared to the provincial to be the purest nonsense, and so he told Ignatius to his face, the latter advanced that God might perhaps bring about a miracle and produce such a powerful effect upon the Turks that they might understand his preaching in the Spanish tongue. But disregarding such views, the provincial shook his head 
and still the more vehemently, and ordered Ignatius to return forthwith to Europe. As the latter did not at once acquiesce in this suggestion, he nominated him a beggar missionary, and under an authority from the Pope to banish all pilgrims who were not compliant to his decrees, he had him conveyed on a certain small ship bound for Venice, where he safely arrived in January 1521, after a four-month voyage. There ended in an almost laughable manner the pilgrimage to Palestine, but it had so far done good that Ignatius obtained a full comprehension of his ignorance and became convinced how impossible it was for him to do anything as a preacher or converter while he had not previously made himself acquainted with the science of Christianity or Roman Catholicism and studied holy theology. He now had already attained his 33rd year and had not the slightest idea of even the rudiments of the Latin language. Moreover, the sole property he possessed consisted of the cloak that covered his body, miserable trousers which hardly reached to his knees, and a long frock tickling full of holes, ticking full of holes. However, he disregarded all this and resolved to return to Barcelona to commence there his studies. Quote, God and the Holy Mary, whose knight I am, he thought, will further assist me, and I hope that I will with ease collect sufficient by begging to complete my studies. Indeed, the Jesuits were first called the Knights of the Virgin Mary. And of course, the Virgin Mary is, in fact, the goddess of heaven, the queen of heaven, the mother goddess of ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt. Sure, he made his way from Venice by Genoa. Forthwith, he had to encounter many dangers before he arrived there, owing to the war that at the time was going on between Francis I of France and Charles V, Emperor of Germany and King of Spain. Among other adventures, he was taken prisoner by the Spaniards on suspicion of being a spy and treated to the scourge. When at length he reached Genoa, he there had the good fortune to be provided by the commander of the Spanish galleys, a former acquaintance, Rodrigue Portundo, with a free passage upon a ship, and he arrived safe and sound at Barcelona without further mishap. This shows the nettle of Ignatius Loyola, his utter determination to go to Palestine and to convert the Turks, in fact, to take Jerusalem from the Muslims, and this was one of the foremost purposes for the establishment of the Jesuit order. In addition to its establishment being that it was to be the counter-reformation, destroy the Protestant Reformation, destroy everything that had ever arisen out of the Protestant Reformation, including a Bible in your house and a written constitution to limit the powers of your government. Those two important, absolutely critical things to Western civilization the Jesuits have completely and totally determined to overthrow. They have succeeded in America in overthrowing the Reformation Bible by discrediting the King James Bible, and they have succeeded in making this nation a pagan nation that is not allowed to have the Bible in any public form. The Ten Commandments have been deliberately removed from all public uh, arenas, and we now find ourselves just as pagan as the Soviet Union all because of the works of the Jesuits. Having succeeded in those two areas, they are now moving in on the destruction of Western civilization and the creation of the New World Order, which is in fact a reversion back 
to the old world order, which was the Dark Ages. And I'll show you a few pages from Book 15 of the History of Protestantism by the wonderful English historian James A. Wiley. In his second volume of this history, in the 15th book, we have 54 pages of the most succinct description, purpose, and history of the Jesuit order I believe ever written. These 54 pages have been included at the end of my Vatican Assassins 3, third edition, at the end of the book, and are key and very important. Well, we shall read one paragraph and then we shall close. Protestantism had marshaled its spiritual forces a second time, placing itself at the heart of Christendom at a point where three great empires met. It was laboring with redoubled vigor to propagate itself on all sides. It was expelling from into the air of the world the ancient superstition born of paganism and Judaism, which like an opaque veil had darkened the human mind. A new light was breaking on the eyes and new life staring in the souls of men. We shall close this moment and redo and begin our study tomorrow evening. This is Eric John Phillips. God bless. If you'd like to get a copy of this program, there are a few ways that we can help you. You may subscribe at libertyradiolive.com for only $45 a month, and you'll receive an MP3 CD weekly of all the First Amendment Rights Media Group programs. As a bonus, we'll send you a password for our audio archives online. That's a $15 value. Or you can request any month of any program on one MP3 CD for a minimum donation of only $20. For any single program on tape, MP3 CD, or CD for only $15. You can do all this online at libertyradiolive.com. Just follow the instructions to make a donation or subscribe. Don't do Internet? Then call 559-781-3773, 559-781-3773, and we'll be honored to help you. Thank you from all of us here at the First Amendment Rights Media Group.
This is most important because the Jesuit order did more to set back the Protestant Reformation than any other force of Europe, including all the armies of Charles V and succeeding Holy Roman emperors. The Jesuits exist today. Their very purpose is for the destruction of the Reformation and the bringing the world back to the Dark Ages. And this should be taught in every Bible-believing church. We continue with the works of Wiley. We remember what Loyola went through, his suffering as a soldier, his trip to Jerusalem. And what do we have here? The author then says, The war in which Loyola and his nine companions enrolled themselves when, on the 15th of August, 1534, they made their vow in the church of Montmartre, was to be waged against the Saracens of the East, that means the Muslims. They acted so far on their original design as to proceed to Venice, where they learned that their project was, meanwhile, impractical. The war which had just broken out between the Republic and the Porte had closed the gates of Asia. They took this as an intimidation, as an intimation that the field of their operations was to be in the Western world. Returning on their path, they now directed their steps towards Rome. In every town through which they passed on their way to the Eternal City, they left behind them an immense reputation for sanctity by their labors in the hospitals and their earliest addresses to the populace on the streets. As they drew nigh to Rome, and the hearts of some of his companions were beginning to despond, Loyola was cheered by a vision in which Christ appeared and said to him, quote, In Rome will I be gracious unto thee, unquote. The hopes this vision inspired were not to be disappointed. Entering the gates of the capital of Christendom, or capital of Roman Catholicism, and throwing themselves at the feet of Paul III, and they met a most gracious reception. The Pope hailed their order of assistance as most opportune. Mighty dangers in that hour threatened the papacy, and with the half of Europe in revolt, and as the Protestant Reformation, the northern half of Europe was breaking away from the Pope's temporal power. With the half of Europe in revolt, and the old monkish orders become incapable, this new and unexpected age seemed sent by heaven. The rules and constitution of the new order were drafted and ultimately approved by the Pope. Two peculiarities in the constitution of the prepared order specifically recommended it in the eyes of Paul III. The first was its vow of unconditional obedience. Unconditional obedience. The society swore to obey the Pope as an army does its general. It was not canonical, but military obedience, which its members offered him. They would go to wheresoever place, and whatsoever time, and on whatsoever errand, he should be pleased to order them. They were, in short, to be not so much monks as soldiers. The second peculiarity was that their services were to be wholly gratuitous, Never would they ask so much as a penny for the papal see. It was resolved that the new order should bear the name of the Company of Jesus. Loyola modestly declined the honor of being accounted its founder. Christ himself, he affirmed, had dictated to him its constitution in his cave at Manresa. He was its real founder, whose name then 
could be whose name then could so appropriately bear his as his. The bull constituting it was issued on the twenty seventh of september fifteen forty and was entitled Regimini Militantis Ecclesiastes and bore that the persons in, 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 it enrolled into an army were to bear, quote, the standard of the cross, to wield the arms of God, to serve the Holy Lord, and the Roman pontiff, his vicar on earth, unquote. This is the, this is the regiment, the militant regiment of the church. They are warriors. They are soldiers. They are, um, in their own minds, invincible. They have a 15-year education, and when they are finished, they will go anywhere and do anything under the guise of holy obedience, which is absolute obedience, and they will labor at their task until death if ordered. In the Jesuit, you have the perfect satanic completion of a man who has managed to uh, control his flesh exercising for the most part complete and total control, self-control uh, um, and composure. In every situation, it is the Jesuit who is able to uh, counter and fight down the Lord's Protestant Reformation by his satanic power given to the order directly by the devil for the purpose of overthrowing the Reformation. But Wiley continues, an army to conquer the world Loyola was forming, but he knew that nothing is stronger than its weakest part, and therefore the soundness of every link, the thorough discipline and tried fidelity of every soldier in this mighty host was with him an essential point. That could be secured only by making each individual, before enrolling himself, pass through an ordeal that should sift and try and harden him to the utmost. But first, the company of Jesus had to elect a head. The dignity was offered to Loyola. He modestly declined the post, as Julius Caesar did the diadem. After four days spent in prayer and penance, his disciples returned and humbly supplicated him to be their chief. Ignatius, viewing this as an intimation of the will of God, consented. He was the first general of the order. Few royal scepters bring with them such an amount of real power as this election bestowed on Loyola. The day would come when the tiara itself would bow before that yet mightier authority, which was represented by the cap of the general of the Jesuits. So, we have Loyola becoming an absolute monarch over the Jesuit order and ultimately over the papacies. The papacy. Why to continue this? Let us next attend to the organization of the society. The Jesuit monarchy covers the globe, and its head, as we have said, is a sovereign who rules over all, but is himself ruled over by no one. First come six grand divisions termed assistances, satrapies, or princedoms. By the way, today there are ten assistances, and there is an American assistant to the Jesuit Superior General Peter Hans Kohlenbach. It is this American Jesuit assistant who is the most powerful American Jesuit and one of the most powerful Jesuits in the world. And he too is a general, but he is not the superior general. Um, these comprehend the space stretching from the Indies to the Mediterranean, 
more particularly India, Spain and Portugal, Germany and France, Italy and Sicily, Poland and Lithuania. Outside this area, the Jesuits have established missions. The heads of these six divisions act as coadjutors to their general. They are his staff, the cabinet. The Jesuit general has a staff of assistance to him and a confessor and an advisor. So the Jesuit general is taking advice from the scriptures by employing the maxim, in the multitude of counsel, there is safety. Continue. These six great divisions are subdivided into 37 provinces. Today, there are 85 provinces. Over each province is placed a chief, termed a provincial. In America, there are 10 provincials, uh, corresponding to our 10 regional governments. The provinces are again subdivided into a variety of houses or establishments. First come the houses of the professed, providing over by their provost. Next come the colleges or houses of the novices and scholars, presided over by their rector or superior. Where these cannot be established, residences are erected for the accommodation of the priests who preambulate the district, preaching and hearing confessions. And by the way, the confessional is nothing more than a system of international espionage. These men have no power to forgive sins. They are gathering information for the benefit of the Jesuit general to further the quest to make the Pope the universal monarch of the world and thus is their split phrase, ad majorem de gloriam, or for the greater glory of God. And lastly, may be mentioned mission houses in which Jesuits live unnoticed as secular clergy, but seeking by all possible means to promote the interests of the society. From his chamber in Rome, the eye of the general surveys the world of Jesuitism to its farthest bounds. There is nothing done in it which he does not see. There is nothing spoken in it which he does not hear. It becomes us to note the means by which this almost superhuman intelligence is acquired. Remember now, the Black Pope controls this international intelligence community composed of all the intelligence agencies of the earth. Every year, a list of the houses and members of the society with the name, talents, virtues, and failings of each is laid before the general. In addition to the annual report, every one of the 37 provincials must send him a report monthly of the state of his province. This is, by the way, the political as well as the spiritual state of the province. Can you imagine what the 10 provincials in America do when they send their monthly report to the Jesuit general of the state of things in the United States? He must inform him minutely of its political and ecclesiastical condition. Every superior of a college must report once every three months. This means Georgetown University and Florida University being two of the 28 major universities that Jesuits control in this country. The heads of houses of residence, the heads of novitiates, must do the same. In short, from every quarter of his vast dominions come a monthly and a tri-monthly report. If a matter reported on as a reference to persons outside the society, the Constitution is direct. The provincials and superiors shall write to the general in cipher. It means code, secret code. Such precautions are taken against enemies, says Andy Chalois, who is a Frenchman. It is the system of the Jesuits inimical to all governments. Thus, the general of the Jesuits, thus to the general of the Jesuits, the world lies naked and open. He sees by a thousand eyes. 
he hears by a thousand ears, and when he has a behest to execute, he can select the fittest agent from an innumerable host, all of whom are ready to do his bidding. Uh, one of the Jesuit generals says, we even have martyrs for our purposes. The past history, the good and the evil qualities of every member of this society, his talents, his dispositions, his inclinations, his tastes, his secret thoughts, have all been strictly examined, minutely chronicled, and laid before the eye of the general. It is the same as if he were present in person and had seen and conversed with him. All ranks from the nobleman to the day laborer, all trades from the opulent banker to the shoemaker and porter, all professions from the studied dignita stole dignitary and the learned professor to the cowed mendicant, all grades of literary men, from the philosopher, the mathematician, and the historian to the schoolmaster and the reporter on the, on the provincial newspaper are enrolled in the society. These are called Jesuit coadjutors. America is full of them. Marshaled and in continued attendance before their chiefs stand his host, so large in numbers and so various in gifts. At his word they go, and at his word they come, speeding over seas and mountains, across frozen steppes or burning plains on his errand. Pestilence or battle or death may lie in his path. The Jesuits' obedience is not less prompt. Selecting one, the general sends him to the royal cabinet. Making choice of another, he opens him the door of parliament. A third, he enrolls in a political club, you know, like the Jacobins. A fourth, he places in the pulpit of a church, whose creed he professes that he may betray it. A fifth, he commands to mingle in the saloons of the low peoples. A sixth, he sends to act as part in the evangelical conference. A seventh, he he seats beside the domestic hearth, and an eighth he sends far off to barbarous tribes or speaking a strange tongue and wearing a rough garment, he executes amidst hardships and perils is the will of his superior. There is no disguise which the Jesuit will not wear, nor art he will not employ, nor motive he will not feign, no creed he will not profess, provided only he can acquit himself as a true soldier of the Jesuit army and accomplish the work on which he has been set forth. We have men, exclaimed the general exultingly, as he glanced over the long roll of philosophers, orators, statesmen, and scholars who stood before him, ready to serve him in the state or in the church, in the camp or in the school, at home or abroad. We have men for martyrdom, if they be required. Men like Captain Smith of the Titanic. Yeah. We go on in Wiley's work and read a bit more. We have traced at some length the long and severe discipline which every member must undergo before being admitted into the secret class by that way of eminence to constitute the society. Before arriving on the threshold of the inner circle of Jesuitism, three times has the candidate passed through that terrible ordeal, first as a novice, secondly as a scholar, thirdly as a coadjutor. Is his training held to be complete when he is admitted among the professed? No. A fourth time must he undergo the same dreadful process. He is thrown back again into the crucible and kept, kept amid its fires till pride and obstinacy and self-will and love of ease 
till judgment, soul, and conscience have all been purged out of him, and then he comes forth fully refined, completely tempered and hardened, a vessel fully fitted for the use of his general, prepared to execute with a conscience that never remonstrates his most terrible command, and to undertake with a will that never rebels the most difficult and dangerous enterprises he may assign him. In the words of an eloquent writer, talk of drilling and discipline. While the drilling and the discipline which gave to Alexander the men that marched in triumph from Macedon to this Indus, to Caesar the men that marched in triumph from Rome to the wilds of Caledonia, to Hannibal the men that marched in triumph from Carthage to Rome, to Napoleon the men whose achievements surpassed in brilliance the united glories of the soldiers of Macedon, of Carthage, and of Rome, and to Wellington, the men who smote into the dust the very flower of Napoleon's chivalry, why the drilling and the discipline of all these combined cannot, in point of stern, rigid, and protracted severity for a moment, be compared to the drilling and discipline which fitted and molded men for becoming full members of the militant institute of the Jesuits. I quote, such Loyola saw was the core that was needed to confront the armies of Protestantism and turn back the advancing tide of light and liberty. By the way, the United States Marine Corps is patterned after the Jesuit order. One of the things they do in the Corps in basic training is they break your will into the dust so that they can remold you and make you into an absolute obedient slave to your superior. And that is why the Marine Corps is patterned after the Jesuit Corps. Continuing on with Wiley, we shall have a few more words. Now we shall go to Thompson, just for a few minutes, in his Footprints of the Jesuits. He says, concerning the Jesuits, their society is so united and compact that its ranks cannot be broken. They are everywhere the same moved by a common impulse under the dictation of their general in Rome. They are the deadly enemies of civil and religious liberty. Nothing that stands in their way can become so sacred as to escape their vengeance. Protestantism has borne no fruits to which they have ever been reconciled. They consider the reformation which gave birth to it to have been criminal resistance to the only rightful authority upon earth, that which proceeds from church and state combined. They believe that the condition of mankind during the Middle Ages, staggering under the weight of feudal oppression, was preferable to modern progress and enlightenment, that human happiness would be promoted by the return to that period, that the political right of self-government by the people cannot be set up against the higher right of papal and monarchical power, and that the progress of the advancing nations is delusive and unsubstantial, and that institutions which guarantee civil and religious freedom if not arrested by some coercive power strong enough to put an end to them, will lead through heresy to social ruin and desolation. If at the period of the Reformation the society had not been established for the express purpose of counteracting its influence, a knowledge of the difference between primitive Christianity and the prevailing dogmas might have led to such reforms as would have reconciled Christians to dwell together in peace and concord. But when a dove should have been sent forth bearing the olive branch of Christian charity, the society sprang from the brain of a disappointed military adventurer and began at once to scatter the seeds of strife and discord. Almost from the beginning, it has been a disturber of the peace of nations, suffering only such as have bestowed patronage upon it to escape its maledictions and plottings. 
The members of the society are numerous and powerful in the United States. They are constantly increasing, mainly by accessions from their drilled and disciplined companions in Europe, but also by conversions of unsuspecting young men who are seduced by their vain and supercilious pretension as educators. They are, as they have always been, selfish and vindictive, restless under opposition, and compromising in nothing. They have neither country, nor homes, nor families, nor friendships beyond the limits of their order, none of the affections of a heart which give them charm to life and social intercourse, being required to abandon all these and fit themselves for uninquiring obedience to their general, whose commands, whether right or wrong, good or bad, they have solemnly vowed to execute without the least regard for consequences. Having persistently refused to become reconciled to the forms and methods of Christian civilization which prevail among our Protestant population, once in Protestant America, they employ all the resources they can command in endeavoring to arrest them. They insist that church and state shall be united wheresoever they are separate, and that the basis of such union shall be the subordination of the state to the church. Self-government by the people is held by them to be a violative of the divine law, and on that account may rightfully be resisted as heretical when its overthrow can be assured. They will allow no rights to exist in either states, peoples, or individuals against what they consider the prerogatives of their society as defined by their general, who in their estimation possesses the divine right to enlarge or contract them at his own pleasure. There must be no limitation to the power and independence of the Pope, either in the spiritual or temporal domain, except where the interests of their society command otherwise. And must, they must be full, absolute, unquestioned to the extent defined by himself. His liberty must be such that he may, at his own discretion, curtail the liberties of all others. His spiritual sovereignty must include whatsoever he shall embrace within it. Neither the existence nor the extent of his sovereignty must be brought in question before any human tribunal. That means he's a sovereign. But he alone shall define it together with the character of the obedience he shall exact. And if, in the course of the table economy, he should ever find it necessary to hold in one hand emblems of harmony and peace, this restless and uncompromising society stands always ready to place the rod of chastisement in the other. The conflict of opinions, therefore, in which the Protestant people of the United States find themselves engaged is not of their inviting. They are unwilling parties to it. Because of this, a sense of both duty and security demands the history and character of the skilled and powerful adversary, alien birth and growth and sentiment, should be understood. These are the Jesuits. These are the ones we do war with, and we must know completely about them if we are to succeed.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.